Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earth eras of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. I'm Ryan Daly. This episode, we will discuss Detective Comics number 572, the 50th anniversary issue of Detective Comics, by the regular creative team of writer Mike W. Barr and artists Alan Davis and Paul Neary, plus several other special guest artists. It also contains several special guest stars, uh, and it was also published on the 100th anniversary of one of those very special guest stars, whom we'll also discuss later. So lots of stuff later. <laughs> very nice. So, Ryan, are you ready for this giant 56-page book? Whew, between this and the amount of listener feedback we're going to have to cover, uh, people, you might want to dig in. This is going to be an extra long episode. This is going to be like Siskoid's Star Trek Season <laughs> 1 episode, or our original series episode. It's not even Season 1, it's all three seasons in one. Uh, <laughs> So this issue, because it, of course, you know, DC did anniversary issues in style back in the day. This issue has several guest stars besides the usual Batman and Robin. And first up, we have to, I guess, since this is the 50th anniversary of Detective, it would probably be a good idea to start with the character who actually debuted in Detective Comics number one, March 1937. That would be the detective character Slam Bradley, who was created by two guys you may have heard of, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Yeah. Uh, this was the first time I ever read about Slam Bradley. It was in this issue, I think. Uh, and then probably Detective Comics 500. He had a short story in that one. Uh, mm -hmm. And then The New Frontier, uh, when he was partnered up with John Jones. Um, yes. And, and then I know he ended up becoming a side character in the Catwoman comic during the uh, Darwin Cook era, or the Ed Brubaker era, or both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I, I I haven't read any of his original Golden Age stories. Although his chapter in this issue, I think we'll see, feels sort of formulaic of a Golden Age type of story, and and we can get into that later on. But uh, he's mm -hmm. cool. I, I like the idea of just a, a plain clothes, you know, in the vintage style, plain clothes gumshoe detective. Yeah, me too. And. He ran until Detective Comics 152 in October 1949, so he had a good long run. I mean, he outlasted a lot of the other characters. The book kept getting slimmer and slimmer. You know, they kept cutting the page number and keeping the price at 10 cents. I mean, of course, Batman wasn't going anywhere, right. but Slam hung around. And, and I think I met him in this story as well. Well, I probably saw him in his Who's Who entry, and uh, which might have been around this. I don't know. I think they were probably a little bit past the S's in the original Who's Who. But I didn't get Detective 500 until I think sometime after this. So it wasn't too long after this, but I had missed number 500 on the rack, which, you know, just killed me, you know. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah his previous appearance before this in a story was 500. And then before that, it was that last issue of Detective. So <laughs> he'd had a quite some time off and then not quite as much time off. And then, of course, like you said, Darwin Cook and Ed Brubaker dusted him off and, and put him to good use yeah. uh, quite a bit. Yeah, and there's uh, I, I enjoyed his, his part in this one, too. Of course, we'll get into that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he was a, you know, obviously a backup feature in Detective, predating Batman by about two years. Mm -hmm. 
Another character who was a backup for Batman, who's also a guest in this issue, was Ralph Dibney, the Elongated Man. And he debuted as a supporting hero in The Flash in April, May 1960, Flash number 112. But he had a solo strip that ran in Detective, starting with the new look Batman that Julius Schwartz brought in in Detective Comics number 327, May 1964. So basically, Julius Schwartz came into Detective and said, hey, I'm bringing this character I helped create. (laughs) (laughs) And Carmine Infantino was working on Batman and Ralph was a detective. So it made sense, you know. Yeah. I like this character a lot. I, I have a soft spot for Elongated Man. When I started reading DC a lot uh, in the in the mid two thousands, Identity Crisis was uh, one of the first books that I read, and for all of the problems with that story, uh, it made me love a lot of those characters because you know the nuances of the plot and and what actually befalls the fate of certain characters, notwithstanding. I think Brad Meltzer had a really good ear for the dialogue and finding the voice of those characters, uh, True. particularly Green Arrow, but a lot of other characters. And, and he made me like Elongated Man, so I started reading the Showcase Presents Flash books with the Elongated Man backups, and I really like him. It's, it's funny just because of the nature of their powers and their kind of detective police investigation set. It's, he is very often compared to Plastic Man. And Plastic Man is just more flashy and more fun and kind of larger than life. But I think there's an element of Plastic Man that doesn't necessarily fit with the greater DC universe, Mm -hmm. uh, despite how well he was used in like a cartoon like Batman the Brave and the Bold. I think of Plastic Man kind of in his own little world, much the way I think of, you know, Captain Marvel Shazam in his own little world. Uh, whereas Ralph feels like he belongs with the Justice League, with these characters. He, he's a good fit for that world. He, he's a good complement to them. And I like his relationship with Sue, his wife. I have a soft spot for, for Elongated Man and Plastic Man, but I, I like Elongated Man in this type of story. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think Plastic Man, his world is just a little too wacky to fit in with the mainstream DCU all the time, like an occasional guest spot, like a team up or, or something. But Ralph fits into that slot in the justice league easier, you know, because he can, he's a little less wacky. His powers are actually a little more constrained, although we'll get into uh, his powers (laughs) in this issue because, uh, he does some things in this issue I don't really think he's supposed to be able to do, but uh, which is interesting because Mike W. Barr is a big fan of the Elongated Man, and in fact, he broke into comics writing an Elongated Man story for Detective Comics, which we brought up before, but that was Detective Number 444, December, January 1974, which actually would be the cover-dated issue of my birthday, because yeah. December 1974, uh, So, <laughs> which is interesting, but... Uh, and Ralph had a strip uh, from from that new look Batman number 327. He had a strip straight through number 383 in January 1969. And then throughout the 70s, Julius Schwartz would occasionally bring him back for an occasional backup story in Detective. So he, you know, he was in the book quite a bit. So it made sense to to have him here. And then also him and Batman were were teammates in the Justice League, of course, as you mentioned. And in fact, I had to remind myself that they had just been in Justice League Detroit together. I yep. mean, like. I had to remind myself of that. I said, oh, yeah, Batman had rejoined the Justice League, and basically him and Ralph both left before they all got slaughtered. <laughs> they walked <laughs> off panel before all the bad crap happened right around this time, right during Legend. So, uh, it was they could read the writing on the wall. <laughs> right. Of course, uh, Ralph was co-created by Carmine Infantino. 
uh, and he drew many of his detective backup stories, and he draws him in this issue. And oddly enough, Infantino was the publisher of DC uh, for the one-shot appearance of the last guest star character that DC had published. They published one issue of Sherlock Holmes, cover dated September, October 1975, and that issue was drawn by artist E.R. Cruz, who is also the artist in this chapter of Sherlock yep. Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, gosh, when was this? Seven, eight years ago, I think I was listening to Matt Wagner on, uh, I think it was a Word Balloon podcast with John Suntress. Uh, and Wagner was saying that, you know, certain of these characters, the, the, you know, characters like the Lone Ranger, like Zorro, and like Sherlock Holmes, they fit for their particular world and their era. You couldn't update them. You couldn't do a modern Zorro without losing an essential element of the character. That just, it, it diminishes the character. And he said you couldn't do a modern detective Sherlock Holmes without losing some of that character. And I was like, yeah, I think that's probably right. And then I watched the BBC Sherlock show with Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. And I was like, well, they cracked the code. I was <laughs> like, they, they certainly figured out how to do it in a modern sense and make it work really, really well. Um, right. Because that show was terrific, and it made my, my wife a longtime uh, fan of Benedict Cumberbatch. She loves him. <laughs> uh, she, I, I swear, she thought the movie Doctor Strange was made just for her because she has had crushes on Benedict Cumberbatch, Mads Mikkelsen, who is the villain in Doctor Strange, also on the show right. Hannibal, and at one point, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> so she thought Sherlock, or she thought the Doctor Strange movie was made just for her. Like she was the only person in the theater. And I was like, all right, well, as long as you're enjoying it. Hey, yeah, that just made it easier for you to go see it, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's interesting that um, when I when I got this issue, I'm like, well, what's the big deal? Batman met Sherlock Holmes years ago in that Power Records story I've had since I was like three. You know that <laughs> there was a there was a Power Records story called Mystery of the Scarecrow Corpse. It's available on several on like two different albums. One's a a book and record set that I believe the artwork's by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Uh -huh. Praise be his name. And then there's a just a regular album version that I had as a kid and still have. And Rob and I actually covered that on episode nine of our Power Records podcast. So uh, in that one, Batman uh, believes he has met the ghost of Sherlock Holmes at the end of the story. But we'll we'll see what happens here. But yeah, it's uh, that I was like, oh, this is like my old Power Records. So it was kind of like. You know, it made, it, it made me feel all nice and warm and fuzzy for my childhood, even though I was only like, you know, 12 when this came out. So. <laughs> Did you ever now, watch the old Sherlock shows, like the, the Peter Cushing ones or Basil Rathbone? I like the uh, – I have seen a few of the uh, Basil Rathbone when I was younger. I need to go back and watch those because, you know, they're kind of – they were made by Universal, and so they're kind of tangentially connected to the Universal monsters mm -hmm. in a way. I mean, you know, a lot of the same actors, same people working on them. And, of course, I'm a big Universal yeah. fan. And then, of course, that's oddly carried over to the, the one Hammer Sherlock Holmes movie uh, that where Peter Cushing played Holmes. And uh, Christopher Lee's also in that movie, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I mean, that's 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 fantastic. And and uh, I mean, I think uh, I mean, Basil Rathbone and 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 Peter Cushing both just seemed like they were born to play that character, you know. Uh, and, and then they turn around and there's versions where Cushing played Holmes again, like on a TV series for the BBC. And then uh, Christopher Lee played 
Sherlock Holmes uh, in like in the 80s in like a few movies or something like that. So there's been and of course, there's a Robert Downey Jr. version of Sherlock Holmes. There's so many Sherlock Holmes. It's <laughs> <laughs> but this one's pretty the, – the version we get in here is pretty pretty classic. I mean yeah. you, can, you can imagine Basil Rathbone or Peter Cushing uh, in this book, which – me being who I am, I, I think of Peter Cushing. <laughs> I well, I mean, we'll get to it. I I think I think Alan Davis might have had Peter Cushing on the mind when when he, when he was drawing him, to like he softened him a little bit. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, now, it, speaking of uh, Holmes, 1987, which we were coming up on as this was being published, was the 100th anniversary of the publication of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes story. So this is the 50th anniversary issue of Detective and the 100th anniversary issue for Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll take a quick break, run some promos, and when we come back, we'll deep dive in Detective Comics number 572. The end of the world is approaching. Soon the planet will be engulfed in a nuclear Armageddon. And the only people that can prevent this from happening are considered to be the greatest villains of all time. The only thing standing in their way is the Justice League. In 2005... Uh, wait a second. Are, are we sure about that date this time? Yeah, it's 2005. We're sure this time. Let's just be perfectly clear. I hate all of you so much. Okay, good. Got that. All right. In 2005, DC Comics began publishing a 12-issue bi-monthly comic called Justice. Written by Jim Kruger with art by Alex Ross and Doug Braithwaite, this series was essentially a Super Friends for adults. And now another group of Super Friends has come together to discuss all 12 issues in a podcasting crossover called J.L. May. 2017. The excitement begins on the April 30th episode of the Fire and Water podcast and continues into Supermates, the Idle Head of Diabolu podcast, Views from the Long Box, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, the Lantern cast, the Shazam cast, Comic Reflections, the Silver and Gold podcast, the Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, and Justice's First Dawn. J.L. May, 2017. Last year, they covered the beginning of the Justice League. This year, they discuss and review the League's toughest battle. The coverage begins on April 30th on the Fire and Water Podcast, located at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Detective Comics number 572 was cover dated March 1987 and went on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on December 26, 1986. So it was the day after Christmas, despite there being a Christmas setting in this story, which is interesting. Uh, the cover by Michael William Kaluta features Batman looking over the shoulder of Sherlock Holmes, who is seated at an ornate desk with pipe in hand reading an issue of Detective Comics. Batman has one hand on Holmes' shoulder and the other is pointing toward the comic. On the wall beside them is a framed copy of Detective Comics number 27, Batman's first appearance. So what do you think of this cover, Ryan? Well, Michael Kaluta did it, and 
he's really, really good at drawing covers. So <laughs> I, I think anybody needs to sort of check themselves before they criticize any of his work. Um, and now I'm trying to wonder if I criticized his Man Bat Animal Man cover of Secret Origins. But anyway, <laughs> for, for, forget what I just said. Uh, it's a really cool cover. Um, it's great to see Batman and Sherlock seeming to work together. I can't help but notice like the body language with Batman with his hand on Sherlock's shoulder pointing something like it kind of seems like Batman is like pointing out a clue like he's trying to teach Sherlock and just because of their age and the the disparity of like who came first it feels like Sherlock should be the one instructing Batman mm-hmm. and I'm kind of getting the opposite feeling from this but it is a Batman comic he is the star um, right the other thing I kind of, at first when I looked at this, I was like, okay, I get that it's Detective Comics 27, that's Batman's first appearance. I was like, but why don't they show the cover of Detective Comics number one? That's the anniversary they're celebrating. And then I couldn't, like, I couldn't picture in my head. I was like, what did Detective Comics one look like? So I did a, a quick little search. I was like, oh God, oh no, oh no. It's, <laughs> it's that horribly racist Yellow Peril cover. I was like, oh, they can't show that again. That Fu Manchu yes. wannabe guy that's on the cover. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's why that's not there. It's like even in 1987, I was like, oh, no, we can't do that. Yeah. Even though we had uh, Joker's sidekick being kind of racially insensitive in the last few couple issues. But, but it's not on the cover. It's not on the cover. Yeah. Uh, at the risk of offending Kaluta fans, I, this is very well rendered. It's beautifully drawn, but it's boring. To me, I uh, I can see that it just it looks like Batman stopped by the rest home to spend some time <laughs> with Holmes because he wanted to ease his conscience. He felt guilty. He hadn't been there in a while. Then they're doing some scrapbooking, you know, and he's you know, he's watching the clock the whole time. It's like, OK, if I stay here an hour, I'm good. I can leave. You know, I got stuff to do, you know. So it, it just it just when you flip the book open in the splash page by Davis is there. It's very dynamic. Yeah. It sells the idea of the story more. You get the guest stars. I don't know. I just I think that would have been a better cover than this. I mean, it's it is, of course, very ornate and beautifully drawn. It's just not very dynamic. And we've gotten used to really dynamic Alan Davis covers during this run. So That is true. That is true. Maybe this would have been a better pinup inside the book than the cover. Um, I, I noticed that the anniversary 50 years up on the cover, like the, we talked about that type of branding title when we did mm-hmm. Batman 400 on the first episode. I liked the golden boss version that they did with that one and this one it's uh it's just more sort of like very obvious comic booky yellow and red um, yeah i i can see that it doesn't bother me as much because it does feel kind of like a a celebratory thing it compared to what alan davis would have turned out yeah this is more of a post portrait type of cover than an action shot Right. It's like, you know, Batman's like, can we get a quick picture before you walk away? You know, so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, and Michael Kaluta did draw quite a few covers for Detective back in the 70s. So, you know, mm-hmm. makes sense. But yeah. OK, you ready to jump into the story proper? Yep, I am. OK, the Doomsday Book was written by Mike W. Barr, colored by Adrian Roy, unless otherwise noted. And Denny O'Neill was the editor. And we'll get into the art credits in each chapter from the title page. From a century past, from the mind of the most evil genius men have ever known, comes a threat that can only be solved by the greatest sleuths of our time and the greatest sleuth of all time. Chapter 1, Slam Bradley, Alan Davis artist, John Workman letterer. Gotham City, a few days before Christmas. A melancholy Slam Bradley drinks alone in a local bar. He gives his bartender a nice holiday tip and heads back to his office, the former office of Bradley and Morgan, investigators. 
Slam looks at the paper that reads, Private Detectives Slain by Pushers. The old and grizzled gumshoe thinks of how, although he had avenged his partner Shorty Morgan's death, his own mortality had never before been more apparent. Bradley's self-examination is ended by the arrival of his client, a young Englishman named Morgan, no relation, recently arrived from London. Morgan tells Bradley of how his fiancée had been kidnapped the day before. He has reason to believe she has been brought to Gotham. Bradley thinks there is more to this story than meets the eye, and he's soon proven right when men armed with automatic weapons abruptly enter the office. While he fires his forty-five in response, Bradley and Morgan duck out the window, down the fire escape, and into the snow-covered cul-de-sac below, charging past more men blocking their path. They head for a sewer entrance Bradley has used before on such occasions, but a stray shot sends his gun flying from Slam's injured hand. The elder detective and his client are backed against a wall when a familiar shadow appears over them and their assailants. Batman and Robin swing onto the scene and pounce upon the gunman. While Robin makes painful puns, Batman saves himself from machine gun spray by using a goon as a human shield. Robin nearly buys the farm when leaving his back exposed, but Bradley is there to compensate with a strong left cross. The Cape Crusaders take care of the entire gang, except one man, who grabs Morgan at gunpoint. As the gunman warns the heroes to not follow him, Batman notes his British accent, matching up with the mysterious tip Commissioner Gordon had received from London. As he walks away with his victim in tow, the man warns Batman to play this one, quote-unquote, by the book. After he is gone from sight, Batman tells an enthusiastic Robin they will be spending Christmas in England. The Dark Knight thanks Bradley for his help, but tells him his part in this adventure is through. As a dynamic duo swing away, Bradley lights a cigarette. He rationalizes, since Morgan was his client, he owes it to him to help, even if he hadn't paid him yet. Leaving the beaten men in the alley behind him, Bradley sits off on his latest case. Chapter 2 is penciled by Terry Beatty, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by Todd Klein, and colored by Carl Gafford. Slam Bradley has had easier cases in his career. He barely knows anything about Morton. He knows nothing about the girl in the picture, not even her name. His only clue is that the IRA is involved in her kidnapping. So Slam visits every Irish bar in Gotham City, places with names like the Green Angel, Mickey's, Lucky's, the Leprechaun, O'Hara's Tap, each time with a similar bluff. He shows the bartender and patrons a picture of the girl, telling them the IRA kidnapped the wrong girl, but he gets no sign of guilt or reaction from any of them. Finally, at a pub called the Winged Harp, his bluff pays off. Slam sees a man duck out of the bar and make a phone call from a payphone in the alley. Slam had the foresight to bug that particular phone booth and plays back the tape. It doesn't give him much information other than Brendan as the name of one of the kidnappers and the telltale sound of the cable car that runs from Gotham City to Gotham Island. Slam takes the cable car out to the island. It's a suburban residential area and the kidnappers must have been in a house near the station for the phone to pick up the sound. So Slam checks the houses nearby and gets lucky on the first try. He sees the girl from Morton's photo in the window, but the kidnappers spot him and rush out of the house. Drawing his weapon, Slam Bradley crashes through the window. The girl is noticeably startled, but Bradley keeps her as calm as possible while ushering her to the house's garage. One of the kidnappers tries to cut them off, but Slam shoots him. That might be the end of his good luck, however, because there's no getaway car in the garage, but there are a couple of cans of gasoline. As the kidnappers rush into the garage, guns blazing, Slam and the girl toss gas cans into the air. Slam shoots the cans, igniting the gasoline. The explosion burns and blinds the kidnappers, and Slam is able to knock the last one out with a punch that might have broken his hand. After that, Slam has a minute to question the girl about her boyfriend, Morton. She says his real name is Thomas Moriarty, and her name is Mary Watson. 
Chapter 3, The Elongated Man and the Adventure of the Lost Adventure. Carmine Infantino and Al Bay, artists. Todd Klein, letterer. Carl Gafford, colorist. December 24th, London. Ralph Dibney walks through the fog to the famous address of 2218 Baker Street, former home to legendary sleuth Sherlock Holmes. Ralph's friend, Richard Wade, claims to have unearthed an unpublished home story. Dibney admires the exterior of the building and Wade's adherence to tradition with a dummy of Sherlock Holmes in the window. His thoughts of Holmes' arch-foe Professor Moriarty shooting at said dummy become shockingly real when a shot rings out and the window shatters. The ductile detective stretches out of his trench coat, revealing the uniform of the elongated man. He makes his way up the building and through the window to find the dummy of Holmes shot and his friend Wade in shock. Wade warns Ralph that the men behind this are after the lost Holmes manuscript. He barely mumbles its location before passing out. All Ralph catches is the word gene. Is that Wade's wife? His daughter? He doesn't have much time to ponder as the guilty party barges inside. A tall, thin man with sharp features and long, thinning hair and a cape enters with a squad of underlings. He touts the genius of his great-granduncle's air gun and how fitting that it was once again used against Holmes and Watson, or at least the man who has taken care of Watson's estate for years. He tells his men to search for the manuscript so they may destroy it to keep others from stumbling upon their future misdeeds. He then name-drops that great-granduncle, Professor Moriarty himself. Stunned by this revelation, the hidden elongated man blurts out that cursed name. The men search for him, and Ralph emerges from Holmes' famous violin. Using his incredible powers and some authentic Holmes artifacts, he baffles and overpowers Moriarty's crew. But the self-proclaimed genius holds the unconscious Wade at gunpoint, and Ralph is soon knocked out, joining Wade in an involuntary slumber. Moriarty leaves before finding the manuscript, but uses Holmes' own chemical bench to start a fire, with Ralph and Wade inside. Shortly thereafter, Slam Bradley and Mary Watson arrive. Bradley pulls Wade to safety, and Mary is stunned by who she recognizes as the Eel Man. A now alert, elongated man joins them in dousing the flames, recognizing Bradley from a detective convention they both attended a while back. Later, they fill each other in on their parts of the adventure. Ralph deduces Wade's clue was not Gene, but Gasogene, a device used to carbonate water and one Holmes was known to own. He finds it in Holmes' study and the lost story inside. Leaving Wade to rest, Ralph, Slam, and Mary head to Ralph's hotel room, hoping reading this lost Holmes adventure will give them the vital clues they are missing to unravel young Moriarty's plans. Chapter 4, Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of the Red Leech, is illustrated by Euphronio Reyes Cruz. Dr. John Watson comes into the home of his friend Sherlock Holmes at 221B Baker Street in London. Sherlock has just welcomed a new client, Dr. Nigel Brewster, whom the great detective immediately deduces is left-handed, newly married, and a pipe smoker who has just recently given up the habit to appease his wife. Dr. Brewster is astonished and asks how Sherlock knew all of this. The detective reveals the distinctive physical clues that gave him this information, and then asks Brewster why he needs Sherlock's help. Brewster says he may be losing his mind, and tells Sherlock and Watson that on three recent occasions, his friends and family have claimed to witness Brewster going to places and doing things that he himself has no memory of doing. Why doesn't he consult his peers in the medical community, Sherlock asks? Because Brewster doesn't trust them fully, and because he and his partners are soon to become Her Royal Majesty's medical staff, and they can't abide a scandal. Sherlock is intrigued and takes the case. He asks what Brewster's wife's maiden name is, and Brewster says she's Patricia Crosby, from the prominent Crosby family in Chicago. Sherlock wires a Chicago police detective named Templeton, and later gets a telegram response saying that Patricia Crosby and her wealthy banker father were killed last year in a train crash. 
Sherlock and Watson take a carriage and then a train out to Brewster's estate outside of London. On the way, Sherlock explains the discrepancy in Brewster's wife's identity and confides his suspicion that the mystery may be the work of a mysterious criminal mastermind that Sherlock believes is working against him. Sherlock and Watson arrive at Brewster's mansion just before dawn. They sneak in the house from the back door. Sherlock does not want their presence announced, nor does he believe they will encounter any servants. They hide in a corner as the beautiful Mrs. Brewster walks down the hall. Retracing her steps, Sherlock and Watson find Nigel Brewster in bed in a nearly comatose state. Watson tries to rouse him and discovers, to his horror, a four-inch-long, blood-red leech on Brewster's chest. Watson reflexively pulls the leech off Brewster and tosses it in the fire. Sherlock mourns his lost opportunity to study the creature, but prioritizes their safety when their presence is discovered in the house. While trying to carry Brewster out of the house, they're discovered by Mrs. Brewster's sinister agents, and later by the lady of the house herself, pointing a double-barreled shotgun at them. Sherlock leaps to the floor and pulls at the rug beneath Mrs. Brewster. She loses her balance and discharges the shotgun. It blasts the chandelier overhead, which crashes down on top of the woman, killing her. Sherlock and Watson leave Dr. Brewster with the local police, while the pair rushes to Buckingham Palace. There, at the palace, the Queen is about to be attended by her new personal physician, Dr. Brewster. What? Sherlock Holmes leads Inspector Lestrade and the police to the Queen's chamber. The fake Dr. Brewster throws his scalpel at Sherlock. It lodges in the detective's forearm, but Sherlock is still able to punch out the would-be assassin, saving the Queen. In the aftermath, Sherlock reveals another red leech in the fake doctor's medical bag. That night, the real Brewster returns to 221B Baker Street to learn the facts of the case from Sherlock. The detective explains how he surmised that someone was impersonating Brewster around London, and the fact that his wife corroborated these sightings implicated her in the conspiracy. The intent of the impersonation was to gain access to the Queen and poison her with the Red Leech. The whole villainous plot was hatched by Sherlock's unnamed arch-rival, but none of the surviving participants are able to identify the mastermind. Without knowing the full scope of the criminal plot, Sherlock tells Watson not to publish this particular adventure. Then a rock is thrown through Sherlock's window, attached to which is a note warning the detective not to cross paths with his enemy, the man who will eventually become known as Professor Moriarty. Chapter 5, God Save the Kingdom, Alan Davis and Paul Neri, artist, John Workman, letterer. Evening in London, December 24th. While swinging past Big Ben, Batman gets a call on his belt radio from the elongated man. He and Robin join Ralph, Slam, and Mary, who all compare notes. Batman believes this new Moriarty is going to finish what his ancestor started by trying to kill the Queen. While in disguise at a local bar, Batman overheard some thugs talking about an event that will be a crowning achievement taking place at Greenham Commons military base. Mary is emphatic that Thomas Moriarty is not involved in his cousin's machinations, believing she was kidnapped in an attempt to keep him quiet. Robin reports that Alfred had received a message for Bruce Wayne, but the Dark Knight ignores it, instead concentrating on the royal family's scheduled appearance at the Grisby Castle Museum later that evening. When Ralph points out that the Queen is to receive a new edition of something called the Doomsday Book, Batman remembers what the gunman who kidnapped Thomas said in Gotham, let's do this <laughs> by the book. Informing his comrades that he's already contacted the head of royal security and Inspector Foxborough, Batman sends Robin with Ralph out to Greenham Common while he plans to head to Grisby Castle. Before leaving, the masked manhunter tries to shoo Bradley off once more, to which the detective answers, One of the richest men in the world once told me to go to hell. I didn't listen to him either. Mary also refuses to be left behind, and our heroes set off to their respective tasks. 
At Greenham Common, Moriarty attacks a U.S. missile convoy, killing the soldiers driving it with a poison of his own design. He then calls forth his hated cousin Thomas, who points out that the unarmed missiles won't do him much good. Moriarty points toward a large canister of radioactive material to take care of the job. An incredulous Thomas asks why his cousin Edgar would want to cause an international incident between the U.S. and England. The egotistical madman's answer is simple to spread fear and terror, and to remind the world of his family's legacy. He will ensure that legacy by placing Thomas's dead body inside the cab of the missile truck. Speeding through the countryside in Ralph's convertible, Slam catches a familiar odor, nerve gas. The heroes spring into action, taking out the men while Robin literally jumps on Moriarty's back. The villain throws off the boy wonder and activates the launch sequence. Robin lands on the missile as it begins to take off. Knowing Batman would never forgive him if he lets his partner die, Ralph stretches to catch the missile, then uses his body to protect the young hero. Meanwhile, his hands work feverishly to disarm it and change its course. All seems for naught when the missile explodes in the night sky. An enraged slam Bradley KOs Moriarty while Mary finds her beloved Thomas. Just then, Ralph appears as a floating parachute with Robin and the warhead in tow. Bradley congratulates an appreciative Robin on a job well done. At Grisby Castle, Inspector Foxborough is interviewed by a TV news crew who described the Doomsday Book as a registry of the property owners of England throughout the centuries. Foxborough assures the reporter that the royal family is completely safe, with no problems foreseen ahead. Outside, however, the inspector warns his men to be on the lookout for an assassin disguised as Batman. Overhearing this, the Dark Knight's suspicions about the inspector are confirmed. He's spotted climbing the castle tower and is forced to dive into the moat to escape. Making his way through the sewer system and into the castle, a desperate Batman moves his way past the guards to the podium where Queen Elizabeth is presenting the Doomsday Book. The Cape Crusader kicks the book away as it explodes mid-air. He informs Her Majesty and her guards of Foxborough's betrayal, and the detonator in his hand seals the deal. Foxborough's escape is stopped short by a Baritsu flip supplied by a very elderly man standing near the door. Stopping to thank the old man, the usually unflappable Batman is stunned to meet Sherlock Holmes. Dun dun dun! <laughs> when all the heroes convene outside, Ralph is even more shocked to meet the original world's greatest detective in the flesh. Assuring Batman that his ever-present pipe is just for show nowadays, Holmes attributes his extraordinary longevity to a proper diet, certain distillation of royal jelly developed during my beekeeping days, and the rarefied air of Tibet where I keep my primary residence. The master of exposition, Holmes relates how he still keeps tabs on things through contacts in London, particularly the descendants of his greatest foe on the 100th anniversary of Moriarty's greatest failure. Holmes was the one who sent the telegram to Commissioner Gordon and also contacted Bruce Wayne, penetrating Batman's dual identity, even though his message was ignored. Holmes suspected Foxborough's involvement and laments the waste of a great mind like Moriarty in any century. Thomas Moriarty apologizes for his family's evil tendencies, but Holmes tells him he is happy to know that evil doesn't completely dominate the family bloodline. He gives Moriarty and the granddaughter of his dear departed friend Watson his blessing and thanking the assembled heroes, walks off into seclusion once more. Ralph wants to follow him with a million questions, but Batman pulls him back, noting he's earned his privacy. As the detectives walk away, Batman notes that Slam Bradley has been unusually quiet through all of this. Bradley admits that Holmes made him reconsider how old he'd been feeling of late. He flicks away his cigarette, remarking, I'm planning on being around for a while. So, Ryan, what did you think of this giant anniversary issue? My overall big picture feeling is it's the weakest one we've had from the Alan Davis and Mike Barr era. 
it tries to do a lot, some of it successfully. Um, I just thought overall the mystery wasn't as engrossing and it just didn't, it didn't feel like it had the same kind of fun and and revelry that the the previous stories had with the Scarecrow or with the Joker and Catwoman. It, it's okay. I I don't love this one. There are there are a lot of things about it that I really like, but overall, it feels a little bit underwhelming. Um, I think I like the shorter, smaller chapters that pre, like in the be- toward the beginning more than the sort of climactic Batman story that's in the back half. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of with you the same way. In fact, it was one of those cases. It's another one of those cases where podcasting is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, I really used to really, really like this one. But when you start to examine it, you kind of think, well, is it trying to serve too many masters? Is it is it being a little indulgent on Barr's part because he's a real huge fan of, you know, I know this is detective comics, but he's a he's a big fan of the mystery genre. And maybe it's trying to mix too many different elements that don't necessarily go together. And maybe the story's not quite strong enough to pull off mixing all these characters together. You know, it's. I think that's. I think that's probably what it is because I liked the attempt of what he was going for. Because you know, if you look at the previous anniversary thing that Detective Comics had when they did Detective Comics 500, it was a big anthology book. You know, you had the classic tale um, "To Kill a Legend" by Alan Brennert. Um, oh, yeah. There was another Batman story by Walt Simonson. But you also there was a a story with Slam Bradley and Powell Smith and all of the old fashioned like detectives or whatever were in that one. There Misto. was yeah, there was an elongated man story in that. There was a Hawkman story in that, um, and you had all these cool stories. I like that rather than duplicating that formula for the anniversary, he's trying to put all of those characters into one big mystery and finding like this through line that links them together with a Sherlock Holmes mystery. It's mm-hmm. a cool idea. It's a cool premise. Is it successful? The story is just okay, I think. It's... I, I didn't think like the family, like the general generational thing of Moriarty and Watson. I didn't think it was that interesting. Again, not that. Like I don't have a lot of notes for this issue actually because it's not bad. It's just not spectacular. Right. I mean, I think that's because we know that the run is short, mm-hmm. and we're we're getting close to we're what like three issues away now from Alan Davis departing the book. Right. Um, it kind of feels like, man, I wish they'd just done a, you know, a Batman story with a big character. You know, there's no take there. There's no take on a classic Batman villain. You know, it's it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I know this is the take. I do like that they that they treated this as Detective Comics anniversary and not just Batman's. That's right. That's neat. That that reverence for the history of the book outside of it just being a Batman vehicle was was nice. But yeah, I, I think I just don't think it's. I like the idea, but yeah, the execution's a little lacking. I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a great idea. I think it just really needed a more spectacular story. I don't know, and it's the story doesn't quite hang together. Uh, there's a there's a few parts in here that that I had to go back and reread. Like I'm a little like I don't know exactly know where the IRA comes into this. It, it just sounds like why did Slam think that? Were they working with Moriarty? It's kind of a thing in slams chapter and then not you know there's yeah, the whole once, thing once that part came up i was like well did there have to be like an irish accent or whatever like with one of the characters that just wasn't picked up in the lettering or wasn't conveyed in the script like right yeah, I, there's things like green greenham common is a raf mm. base why does it have a u.s missile you know <laughs> i mean 
there's things like that. I mean, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and I mean, if if Moriarty, the Thomas Moriarty was a was a U.S. citizen, I mean, an English citizen, then why would they think? I mean, I don't know it's a U.S. missile, but if he's found, you know, at the controls of it, then they're going to think, well, this guy was just some crackpot that got a hold of a U.S. missile. They're not going to, you know, it's not really going to. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it it there were like too many elements that. A, 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 a simple dialogue balloon would have, you know, a line of dialogue or two would have taken care of it. Right. But it just, it's like it wasn't threaded back together quite enough to, because for a mystery story, it needs to be like super tight, you know, like mm-hmm. airtight, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and Barr's usually really good at, at mystery story. I mean, he wrote The Elongated Man. He's, he wrote The Maze Agency, which is a detective series. Actually, uh, think, like my favorite part of the story was chapter four. It was the Sherlock Holmes story. I think Barr did a pretty good Sherlock Holmes story in just, you know, a couple of pages. It had yes. a lot of the similar tropes and the things that you would find in a conventional Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock story. It it felt very much of that piece. But when you step outside and you're kind of telling like the the modern story of of things like that, I was like, ah, I don't think it's holding up. It's probably telling that the most memorable part of this issue, you know, for those of us in the in our kind of fan circle, has nothing to do with Sherlock or Elongated Man or Slam Bradley. It's the fact that Batman uses somebody as a human shield. In the <laughs> he, he's beating up a criminal, which for the, the sequence is on page six. He comes down, he kicks one guy in the face, he's grabbing the guy, and like giving him like three rapid fire punches in the face. You can tell by like the the movement, the way uh, Davis draws like the the fist motion and the lettering, the wood wood wood. He's just like pounding this guy in the face yeah. like a like a sledgehammer. And the guy behind him is cocking back his machine gun, and he turns around, and it, it makes me think. You know, we had that whole debate with Batman Begins. I won't save you, or I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. Uh, what part is the I won't kill you, but I will hold your body in front of a machine gun spray? So that it's not me who's killing you; it's the bullets that kill you. It's like, um, Batman, like this isn't. <laughs> this, I think you're breaking your your code. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you know. As much as I love Barr and Davis, I think this is Batman stepping over the line right here. I really do. I mean, you know, I I knew this was coming. I kind of forgot it was in this issue. I knew it was in one of the issues, and mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, here we are. This is it. Because I know Michael Bailey's been waiting for us to get to this. He, <laughs> we already did the whole profile in prison thing, you know, uh, sending, yep. you know, prison prison rape angle. <laughs> uh, this is worse. I'm sorry. This is worse because that could have been a total bluff on Batman's part. Uh, there's no denying that he he hears the click, and rather than throw the guy down and jump out of the way, which would also have worked, no, he turns the guy in. Which honestly, would that even work with a Uzi? Wouldn't it have shot through the guy into Batman? I, I mean, would think so. I would think. Yeah, I don't even think be. that would have worked. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because <laughs> he had like one of those small Uzis, you know, right. and and so yeah, it's it's like <laughs> I don't think there's any defending this. And you know, it's interesting. I've been reading uh, uh, while I was on vacation. I picked up real cheap. I picked up the Showcase Presents Batman: The Outsiders volume. I think they only did the one, but uh, the it's volume one anyway. So. I've been reading that, and that's, you know, that was Barr's, he had been writing uh, Brave and the Bold quite a bit, but this was Barr's first, like, monthly Batman book, you know, and his Batman in that, you know, he's he's pretty, I think it was Frank that brought up the fact that, you know, he kind of, some of Miller's, uh, what we attribute to Miller's Batman kind of started with Barr, you know, some of his uh, less than uh, savory personality (laughs) traits, you know. He's a bit of a and, harder and, edge, yeah. Yeah, harder edge Batman with the Outsiders, but this is pretty hardcore right here. 
and I don't know why this jumps to my mind, but like that feels like a James Bond thing. Like yes. James Bond, like punching a guy using another villain as the as like the bulletproof shield while he's like fighting. But like it, it's in the title, James Bond has a license to kill. Batman does not. Right. Yes. And, and you know, if James Bond did it, then. Sean Connery would have made some kind of quip about it. It's like, thanks for stopping by or something, you know, or something, you know, but he's glad you were here to stand in front of me. I mean, you know, I don't know. We would have said something clever, you know, but, right. but of course, Batman didn't do that. But, you know, and it's it's kind of, you know, and it's just there's nobody mentions it. There's nothing. There's there's no, you know, glossed over. Like like I said, I think I brought this up, you know, a few years from now and when we get to um, – uh, Night's End, when, you know, after Night's Fall, Nightfall and Night Quest, when Bruce Wayne's trying to get the mantle of Batman back from mm-hmm. Jean-Paul Valley, who's gone batshit crazy, uh, <laughs> Batman will, you know, it'll look like he's killed one of Lady Shiva's men, right. and Robin and Nightwing are just, Tim's just in tears. Yeah. Like, I can't believe you killed somebody, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> well, how, what would he have thought of this, you know, it's like... <laughs> You know, I, uh, I would actually be curious about uh, actually asking Mike W. Barr about this scene because looking mm-hmm. at it again, there isn't any dialogue in this scene, or at least in the like the top half of this page with this three the three panels about the fight with Batman. And without having actually seen the script, I wonder if that was Alan Davis's call. Could have uh, been if if the actual action wasn't as clearly delineated in the script. If Barr basically just said first three panels, Batman takes out these two guys, figure out a way to make it look cool, or if like Barr wrote, you know, Batman turns the guy and throws him into the other guy with the gun as it's going off. So and was trying to miss. And Davis either interpreted it differently or just said, you know, I think this would be cooler. Um, right. I, yeah. I don't know. There's my my inclination is to say this was something that Barr came up with, but maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, his Batman has bluffed, but he hasn't, you know, in the yeah. things I've read, he's bluffed and stuff. He's even bluffed a few times in The Outsiders that I've read so far, but he hasn't he hasn't done anything like this yet. So it's it would be interesting to know, you know, like you said, he could have he could have even said, like, you know, Batman could have thrown the guy into him while the gun shoots off in the other direction as he's fallen over or something, yeah, you know. Right. But no, no, it's it's very clear that he as drawn, he mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if it's indicated in the script, but as drawn, Batman turns the guy into the machine gun fire. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you even get the little motion lines of him yep. swinging him around, you know, it's like, whoop. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> Backing up a little bit, um, I do like the way Davis draws Slam Bradley. He gives him those uh, squinty Joe Schuster eyes. Mm-hmm. You know that that's a nice touch. He looks like the Golden Age Superman, guy, you know, which Slam Bradley did look like the Golden Age Superman, and Doctor Occult looked like the Golden Age. They all looked like the same guy, yeah. basically. <laughs> and you said that this one is the anniversary of Detective Comics number one, not necessarily the anniversary of Batman. And for that reason, I like the fact that we do open up with a. Slam Bradley story. The first two chapters are mostly dedicated to him, not to Batman, mm-hmm. because Slam Bradley predates Batman. Slam Bradley was there in Detective from the beginning, uh, whereas Batman didn't come around, and Batman certainly took over the book, and he became the defining character of the whole publisher. But Slam was there first, so I like that this story begins with a Slam Bradley case. Um, yeah. I, I do think that's cool. And once we get into chapter two, I don't know if this was just Terry Beatty's natural artistic style or if uh, Dick Giordano like helped him out with this. But even though it looks a little bit – I mean it has a bit more of a modern styling, I think the the panel design, the layout, 
there's kind of a simplicity of the storytelling in the the second chapter where Slam is just going about this case that feels like it could have been lifted from an old Slam, like Golden Age adventure. You know, mm-hmm. just, he's got the case. He's going to interview the people. He's talking about them. He gets his clue. He takes a cable car out to the other island. You know, it's it's very kind of stripped down. You know, the detailing of the art, you know, a lot of long shots with the bodies looking very small, not a lot of close-ups until you get to the end. I think the second chapter feels like a Golden Age story. Uh, yeah. Up to and including, like, the art being kind of toned down to look more like, I don't know if it's Schuster-esque, but it's sort of. Yeah. I mean, Terry Beatty's got kind of a, I hate to say use the word stiff, but it, it is a little stiff. He's got kind of a stiff style. It's not. It's not flashy, you know. But uh, but that also that might have been by design. That might have been one of the reasons he was selected for this one. Right. Yeah. Sure. And I mean, it makes you think. Well, he would have been. He, he would have worked out really well in uh, some of the uh, Secret Origins stories that Roy Thomas was doing. If you wanted that, of course, I know a lot of times he wanted to go against the grain to make it more presentable to modern audiences. But sometimes it just didn't seem like the artwork fit the story in a lot of cases. You well, know, because but, he wanted the art to look modern while maintaining a, a very old-fashioned storytelling sentiment, which... Right. Which I'm, not, I'm not going to try that case again. <laughs> <laughs> Once it's been tried, it can't be retried. Uh, <laughs> uh, he was found guilty. No, uh, yeah, the, I, I like that, that, that Bradley got uh, so much to do. And one thing I really liked in this that I want to make sure we get to, I really liked how Barr seemed to be he he kind of built an instant relationship, a rapport between Slam Bradley and Robin, him and Jason. And I would have loved to have seen maybe Slam show up occasionally. Maybe Batman sends Jason off to Slam to for some extra detective training or something. And like it would have been nice to have this kind of grandfatherly relationship. And given what we know what happens with Jason, maybe it would have turned him around. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like it's a nice touch. There's the, he calls him Wonder Boy, and later on, and he says that's Boy Wonder, you know, and and you know he tap tussles his hair, and you know he saves Robin at the beginning, you know, when he's got his back exposed. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a nice little bit, you know, and you get the idea that Slams one, he's you know he's he's apparently not married. He's his partner's who Shorty Morgan was his partner in the old Golden Age stories. I looked it up. Um, so that was a character that was uh, killed off off screen, you know, but uh, but he was a character. So he's missing his partner. So it's kind of neat that he kind of picks up Batman's partner in a way. And, and yeah. you know, when him and, and Ralph and Robin go off on their adventure at the end. But, yeah, I, I, and one thing I like in the, the second chapter is we've got more world building from Barr. We've got the Gotham Island that you can only get via cable car. Yeah, That's, I remember that. And I just, is that a thing? <laughs> it is now, yeah, but of course, yeah. no, nobody ever ran with it again. I really, I really hate that you know Barr's work in establishing Gotham, you know, like building up the city, and this is certain areas of the city wasn't picked up on by other people. They just they didn't run with it. They just created. Well, in my story, I'm going to use this. I'm not, you know, and it, then you end up with fifteen thousand different versions of Gotham City that don't jive together. You know, so. right, right? Yeah, I would love to see like if they could have done more with this sort of like island out there that's a lot more sort of residential, maybe a little bit more upscale, affluent. 
Uh, and instead of taking something like the Staten Island Ferry to get back to the mainland, you know, you take this this cable car, which is very cool. And of course, it leads to you can have action scenes on this cable car, why don't, you know, have, yeah, uh, and fighting somebody on the top of that thing, dangling over the river. Well, it'd be cool if, like, you know, Bruce Wayne had a little, like, a little owned some property there, and he had some kind of he had to go there to get to like a the bat sub or you know or the, the bat boat or something was docked in a cave underneath or so you know they could have done a lot with that yeah, so yeah, off-site bat cave it's just under yeah some, I mean under some house <laughs> yeah that'd be that'd be cool you know but yeah so and uh, you know we got a chapter with the elongated man of course it's drawn by Carmine Infantino mm-hmm. this is full on in, into his more uh, expressionistic period but. I think Alve kind of reins him in pretty well, but not like somebody like Murphy Anderson would. You know, Murphy Anderson, you know, really reined him in a lot. But the the only thing that the artwork doesn't bother me, it's 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 fine, except the fog outside and then the smoke when Moriarty starts the fire. One, there's no flames, right? Uh, which is really strange. It's just smoke, uh, but it all kind of looks the same, and it doesn't quite. The fog looks fine, but the smoke is just kind of really strange looking. It's I don't it's it's just odd, you know. Yeah. And, and especially with Ralph springing around and stretching everywhere, it, it's it's just just a whole lot of squiggly lines all over this chapter. Yeah, you kind of it's it's easy to get disoriented in these pages. Which uh, I mean, if it's supposed to be in a fire filled with smoke, maybe that's supposed to be intentional. But I do think it's a little bit kind of hard to follow what's going on. Whoever I like. Infantino, I like him drawing Ralph Dibney. I think he just he he knew that character fundamentally. He understood how that character should look and work, and he does great things. And I think Barr knows how to write him too. But it's just so jarring coming off of you know the the Terry Beatty pages before this, and then leading into the Cruise pages after this. Uh, it's it's just so different that it's a little bit. This chapter feels like Barr wanted to include the elongated man. Um, mm-hmm. but he didn't need to, <laughs> like, yeah. like Ralph doesn't have to be in this story. They, they could right. have, you know, found another way of getting to this, but I just think he was a long, he was a mainstay of detective comics and, and Mike Barr really wanted to include him because he liked the character, um, which is actually, uh, that was something that I was going to come back to at the end, but I can do it now. I, I really miss Martian Manhunter in this story. Mm. Um, and it was even something again in detective comics, 500, Martian Manhunter is in one panel as a flashback in the Hawkman story. Yeah. And it's like, why did they forget that Martian Manhunter was a major backup for years, years in this and comic? Years. And, and as originally just as the plainclothes kind of John Jones detective, uh, I really wish they had found some way of putting him in this story and making him uh, a big player because I like that element of John and I think it's I think it is a little bit of a disservice to not include him in an anniversary of Detective Comics, but... I hadn't even thought of that, but now that you said that, it, I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. And maybe it was because of what all was going on in Justice League. You know, they had Ralph basically. I think him and Vibe got into it, and he basically quit before in the last few issues, the end of the Justice League. Uh, if I remember right, I haven't read that run in years, but uh, Jean was right in the middle of it in that story. Uh, and, you know, then of course he's going to be in Justice League as it starts. So. Maybe, you know, it was one of those DC editorial things they asked and they said, no, you can't use him. I, who knows? But, yeah, he, he definitely could have, you know, he could have worked right in with Slam Bradley. Of course, we see that Darwin Cook does that in The New Frontier. So we, maybe that's just us thinking because Darwin made it work. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like we, we think those two go together. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
One thing about Ralph that really puzzles me, why the heck does he put a mask on in this story? I don't know. (laughs) That's so weird. I mean, it's like, I think this is the only story where he, because they gave him the new costume, the purple and white costume. and, And I think that was a good idea because his red and black costume looked like plastic man you know i mean it had the same colors and and everything and i mean i kind of like that costume but yeah if you're trying to differentiate him from plastic man then go back to his original purple color scheme and i i like him in purple i like his original purple costume i think it's funny he's one of the few heroes that wear purple because it's so it's much more of an iconic villain color in in comics um, mm-hmm. But I like that he wears it. But the design of his his red and black one from the Justice League, it's a cool-looking costume. But I think my favorite version, I, I, I saw it, and I think it was just sort of miscolored. Or it was colored a much deeper red, almost like a maroon or a wine-colored. Yeah. And I was like, that looks cool because it's sort of red, sort of purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just a, a good look for the character if they had kept something like that. This one, the purple and white, like it's it's much more a, like a lavender type of color, and it's... It feels very soft. They're two very soft. I'm not crazy about this costume. Mm, okay. I, I kind of like I don't, this. I don't hate it. I don't. I, I, the EM part on it, I don't know about that. But, you know, the rest of it I'm fine with. Uh, I think Steven Stefano designed it. And it actually debuted in Who's Who, if I remember right, when Rob and Chag were covering uh, the, the original Who's Who run. And and it kind of debuted there before they started using it in Justice League. But, you know, his identity is publicly known, but he like he puts the mask on. He's, you know, somebody may have been shot and he takes the time to put his little mask on as he's, you know, stretching up the building. It's just really odd. Maybe Infantino just wanted to draw him with the mask again. I don't I don't know. But well, what did, that, what did Wesley say about masks in the, the Princess Bride? They're just terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. <laughs> That's the second time the Princess Bride has come up in my podcast in a week, so it's really strange. Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, good good point. Yeah, one thing that we brought up kind of earlier, we alluded to that I think we need to mention here is that Ralph's powers are normally just shown that he can stretch. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. He cannot. He's basically like Mister Fantastic should be. He cannot assume other shapes like Plastic Man. He can right. stretch, but here he like melds his forearms together and bashes some bad guys he compacts himself enough to hide in Holmes' violin which okay maybe he could do that maybe maybe i don't know uh that might just be a stretching power but then when we get to the end then we just go ahead and get to that part he uses when he's trying to disarm the missile his fingers turn into wrenches and screwdrivers and <laughs> it's it's like he can't do that in <laughs> yeah. bar and especially Infantino should know that, you know, it's, but, and what, did you notice there's one thing about Ralph that's missing from this story besides Sue, but she mentioned Sue, but. Uh, does his nose ever do the twitch? No, uh. his nose never twitches. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. His head like does this thing in one panel where it looks like he's having an epileptic seizure, but he's like, like turning around to look at Moriarty or whatever. But, uh, it's like it's almost like a like like Infantino's drawing the top or something, you know, spinning around. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, he's that's an indictment of not just the character, but of the whole story, because it's not a mystery if his nose isn't twitching. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Maybe the mystery just doesn't <laughs> isn't up to snuff enough to get his old nose, or, you know, twitching. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, but you know the getting on to the uh, Sherlock Holmes chapter. I'm with you. I think that's. I mean, this would. This is a very good, 
you know, new Sherlock Holmes story. I, I, I having read Sherlock Holmes back when I was in high school and, and middle school and stuff, I read quite a, a bit of it. Yes. I haven't read it in years, but, but it was, uh, you know, it, it felt right, you know, mm-hmm. and that's one reason why I sought those, you know, right, this was right around the time I started reading them for real. And I, it felt like this just fit right in. And the, the, the crew's artwork, that artwork reminded me of, um, there were some books that they used to advertise them in comics around this time. They were, Kind of like a classic illustrated type thing, but they were, I think, mostly spot illustrations. They weren't really like comic, you know, comic panels, but they were like uh, young adult uh, or, or child adapt adaptations of classic novels. I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. And and I think Pablo Marcos, who's a comic book artist, his studio did a lot of that artwork. Okay. And the artwork looks in here reminds me of a lot. Cause it was very lush. It had that that Filipino artwork style that mm-hmm. that. Infantino brought to DC in the seventies, basically because they worked so cheap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you had your Nestor Redondos and guys yeah. like that, and stuff. So, I mean, it it uh, it reminds me of that, and it's 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 very very beautiful. It, the only thing that the only criticism was of it was some of the characters looked pretty similar, like Watson and Doctor Brewster looked almost identical you know yeah, if it wasn't yeah. coloring, the coloring. Could, yeah yeah that that was my only criticism of it but i thought it was it was really well done yeah and i i didn't know that cruz had done the uh the other sherlock holmes story uh that dc published but i didn't know that i mean most of his work was in either ghosts or a lot of the war comics uh of the 70s and everything yeah i mean again like i i like the story i thought it, it's a it's a, a simple mystery. It's not quite as complex or engrossing. Of course, it doesn't have the page length to do that, but it still feels like a Sherlock adventure, like something you would have gotten from a classic Conan Doyle story. Yeah, I think I think when we get into the last chapter, it's it's funny that you know even though Davis is a British artist, <laughs> he still has to draw Big Ben. <laughs> You're in London, draw Big Ben. You know, it's like. <laughs> how do we know where they are <laughs> we, we always joke about how we assume that andy Leyland like lives you know a couple blocks over from big ben or something you know but so <laughs> yeah it's like if they're in england there's big ben so you can see it from anywhere in england apparently uh, but they, no they're actually in london so i guess it makes sense but i do one thing i really liked about that last chapter and it's it's these little things it's just these little things that makes an old comic book fan like me just it it I just like it because Batman gets a call on his radio and he immediately knows it's Ralph and he's not like, get off this line or anything. You know, it's like he likes Ralph. You know, Ralph's a bit of a goofball, but Batman likes Ralph. He respects him as a detective. And I always like that when they showed that Batman and Ralph kind of had a little, you know, that detective connection. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of made them maybe a little chummier than some of the leaguers. I always kind of felt like Batman, Flash, and Elongated Man should have been more chummy. Yeah. You know, because Barry was a forensic scientist, so therefore detective in many right. ways. And they, they should have, you know, they should have been. So there were a couple of stories like Mark Wolfman wrote, like, why is Batman talking to me? It's like, no, dude, him and Batman, right. you know, one, they've teamed up enough times they should be, you know, chummy. But it's, a, you know, I, I like that. I like yeah. that Batman wasn't. They a, would you consult know. with each other. They would bounce cases sure. off of each other. I mean, if only just to, to kind of like tell stories and compare. I mean, that's that's what cops do. 
and they mm-hmm. have that connection. So. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like three cops standing around, yeah. you know, yeah. sharing stories. I like that. And, I, I, of course, like I said, I got to thinking, oh, wait a minute, they were they were in the Justice League like <laughs> just a month or two before this, you know, together. So it, <laughs> it makes sense, but it's, you know, it's, you know, Batman didn't like – you know, nowadays, if they teamed up, Ralph would be like, I tried to contact you on the your Justice League communicator, and Batman's like, I changed the codes, or, you know, or something <laughs> like that. I don't want you contacting me anymore. You know, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, no, don't be a jerk, Batman. But I, I like that, that he was like that. I also like that Batman disguised himself as Freddie Mercury. That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> a little conspicuous, <laughs> but... <laughs> uh. So guys walking, man, you killed it live, eh? God, yes. <laughs> You uh, look just like Freddie Mercury. It's awesome. <laughs> Evil Knievel, one issue, and Freddie Mercury, the other. He's got it sewn up, I tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we get back into the... Why did Moriarty kidnap Mary and take her to Gotham? I don't know why. I don't know why we had two Moriartys in this story. I don't know why the the plot... This was... I don't know. <laughs> it, it, you know, I mean, I guess it was kind of trying to show that, you know how times change and the people can get, you know, the, right. the, the, the couple, you know, that's not, but I don't think it was quite developed enough. You know, it was, it's just kind of like, like a lot of things. It was just kind of hanging out there, you know? So, but I will say it's a good thing that Moriarty's men are cheeky and drop hints about the crimes, like <laughs> by the <laughs> book. <laughs> but you know, when you're in Gotham, he's figuring, Hey, all the criminals here just drop hints left and right. So, you know, <laughs> Uh, so let me ask you a question. When when Slam tells Batman the richest man in the world once told me to you know go to hell or whatever, was that a hint that he knew Batman was Bruce Wayne or was that just unrelated? Was he referring to a different rich guy? I was trying to figure that out, and I don't know if that's a reference to something that we should know or what. Like, had Slam and Batman met in the past? Like, is Bruce Wayne the richest man in the world? Is it Lex Luthor? Is it somebody else? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't sure what that was referring to. Yeah, it was just it was just kind of weird, but you know, I it was kind of an odd little thing that that's why I put it in the synopsis in case you thought it might be something. It might be, it might not be. It it would be kind of interesting if everybody knew that Batman was Bruce Wayne in this story. <laughs> of course, Ralph knows because the JLA eventually shared their secret identities with each other. But, you know, Sherlock Holmes figured it out, no problem. From, you know, from Tibet, he figured out Bruce Wayne was Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that chap's Batman. You know, it's just like like reading the newspaper or something, you know. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, So do we we have anything else on this one or are we pretty much exhausted it? Um, I like that Sherlock Holmes appears alive at the end. He looks like a sweet old man. Um, I definitely think in the second to last page, the profile shot is what reminds me of Peter Cushing because of the hawk nose and the pointed chin. Yes. Um, the other the other shots of him where it's more front on, he does look a little bit more jolly. He's definitely an aged man. Uh, he doesn't have like the rake thinness of Cushing, but the profile shots are what reminded me of him. But it, it's fun. It's nice to see all the detectives get together to solve a big case. I just don't think this case was very memorable or or necessarily worthy of their combined talents. As an anniversary, it, it's it's a fine issue. I think we will probably find once we get to the end of this this run, this creative group with with Alan Davis, this is the most forgettable one. Um, yeah, which is which is unfortunate, but yeah, yeah. I, I will say that that you know. 
I think using Ralph in the story helps you buy that Sherlock Holmes could live this long because if you can believe a guy can get stretching powers from drinking soda, <laughs> then then you should be able to <laughs> should be able to buy that this guy's like 120, 25 years old. Say yeah. say he was twenty twenty five years old when he when he started. His, you know, his the first story was published or whatever. So you know that's probably a little young, but let's say he is. So. You know, he's like 125 years old. Oh, okay, in the DC universe, I can buy that. You know, I, I can I can buy that, you know, the rarefied air of maybe it was near Nanda Parabat or something. I don't know, but, you know, it's like, but I do like the way that Davis draws him. He he does a good job of making him look old and leathery, but he's still very, uh, you know, he, he still looks like a kindly old man. He's, he's He looks, he doesn't look like the, you know, this, this, living zombie or anything you know which is he's still a lot of people still has sharp eyes he still looks like he's he's got that his brain is still working behind those eyes yes that's that's a very nice touch that's what i was trying to get at he he makes he he brings his intelligence through he shows his age okay yeah maybe he'd look worse if he was 125 if he lived that long but he does a really good job of, of pulling it off you know and and i do like that the little bit with Slam, you know, flicking his cigarette away at the end. You know, it's like, hey, if this guy can last this long, hey, maybe I can. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to note, did you notice that Gordon is back to being commissioner in this story? <laughs> we finally figured out what his rank is supposed to be. <laughs> Good job, guys. I bet you that was a case where it was they were trying to figure out, okay, year one, how's this affect the current comics? And at one point they were like, okay, he's going to be captain in, yeah. you know, or whatever and lieutenant and then captain in this. And they just, you know, but then they act like they demoted him too. So I, I, who knows? So I, yeah, yeah but he's commissioner Gordon again. So. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is I, I like this assemblage of characters. I like a story that brings a lot of detectives together, but Ralph, I, I think Ralph is the oddball in this group because you think, okay, it's it's Detective Comics that stars Batman. You're going to have Batman and Robin because they are the world's greatest detectives in the DC universe. You also want to have the guy who started, well, Sherlock Holmes as the most famous pop culture detective, even though he wasn't the first technically. And then Slam Bradley fits in as the guy, as the detective from the first issue of Detective Comics. But then once you bring in Ralph, again, I'm just kind of thinking, why not Martian Manhunter? Why not other weirdos like Jason Bard? Or I, I get thinking like, you know, the cast could have been bigger. You could have done more, but then it becomes a little bit unwieldy. So, Yeah. I, I think maybe Ralph was brought in because his solo stories are played, have been played more as detective stories in recent times, whereas, you know, Jean had been, you know, his detective story, he, you know, his early st- stuff was very detective. You know, he barely, he appears in his Martian form in like one panel or something, you know, and he turned invisible. But, but you know, it had been a long time since those stories, so maybe they thought they didn't immediately think of him as a detective, but he did have a longer run in the title than Ralph did. Right. Uh, I think he ran for like 10 years in the book. So yeah, or so. close to it. It's like 55 to 64 or something. So like nine years. So, uh, solid. So, you know, it's, he, he probably deserved the space more, but yeah, it might've been, who knows, an editorial thing or, or bar just liking Ralph so much, but, yeah. but yeah, it, you know, I think you're right. I think this one, it's, it's good. It's, you know, it's certainly, uh, enjoyable. It's it's worth reading. It's not a great mystery or story. It's you know the whole thing killing the queen. I, it's a year off, but I kept waiting for Batman to tackle the queen and go sliding across the big long table <laughs> with her with her legs in the air like Leslie Nielsen in the Naked Gun. I, I you know I just. <laughs> 
I'd love to have seen that. That'd been awesome. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, Reggie Jackson tries to kill her. Must kill the queen. You know, whatever. But <laughs> I love that movie so much. I need to watch that. Actually, I, that was the, I had that movie on the brain. I think it was yesterday. For some reason, oh, I was I was stuck behind a, a student driver uh, in oh, traffic, yeah. and I wanted to see the scene where it's like, "Now, Stephanie, raise your left arm out the window, extend your middle finger." Very good. John Hausman was the driving yes. instructor. Exactly. It's like, Go for it, Stephanie. She just guns it and flirts. Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. Somebody, we need to get Rob to do a film and water on that. <laughs> Just start a new uh, podcast based on Police Squad. It'll be six episodes. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Let's do it. it. Well, we do six. It'd be nine episodes if we do the episodes and then the movies. You know, it's like <laughs> let's do it. Um, one real thing before we leave, we got to talk about the best part of this issue. That is the double page spread pinup mm. by Dick Sprang. Dick Sprang remembers. <laughs> I love this thing. I mean, I when I bought this, I was just so overjoyed, happy, because one of the first old comics I got was, uh, I think it's World's Finest, off the top of my head, 179. It reprinted, like, the origins of the Superman-Batman team, like their first, yep. their first meeting and different things like that, and some of them, and then a bunch of stories from early on in World's Finest. And I got it at a flea market when I was a kid. It was my first introduction to... Like Batman, Superman comics from before my time, basically. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was drawn by Dick Spring because he was drawing World's Finest. In. And I just fell in love with his Batman and Robin. Everything all of a sudden made sense. Oh, this is why Robin, my amigo Robin, has that weird, those weird curls and the, the intro to the, the cartoon intro of the Batman TV show. This looks like this, you know. And, and, and Dick Spring is, uh, e even Mike W. Barr, I've, I've stolen his quote in here, you know, if, if Carl Barks is the good. Donald Duck artist, the Dick Sprang is the good Golden Age Batman artist, you know. It'll be up on the gallery. There's no way in hell I'm not putting this up. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you've got, you know, great shots of Batman. You get the Joker twice. You get the Penguin twice. You get the Scarecrow, which is cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the Dinosaur. I mean, you get uh, Professor Nichols, you know, sending Bruce and, and Dick back in time. And they meet a, one of the Musketeers, probably D'Artagnan and... Uh, you know, they're in ancient Rome. They're on the riverboat, probably with Mark Twain or something. And yeah. you get for Springs Batmobile. It's it's just it's yeah. fantastic. It's classic rogues gallery at the bottom. Lots of lots of uh, just shifty looking gangsters and, <laughs> you know, almost Dick Tracy. Like even though Batman had weird villains before Dick Tracy, don't let anybody tell you any different. <laughs> Batman's weird villains predated Dick Tracy's weird villains. So so there. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's fantastic. I love it, and to, to me, this is this this is the best part of the whole issue. <laughs> I agree. I, I think yeah, it's just yeah, it's it, there, there's so much love about it. there's so much love put into this picture, and there's so much to love about it. So this is good. The only thing is, is in the intro, uh, Barr says, "Should we hand him a script? We're way ahead of you on that, or something." Well. They they does some covers and things for you know in the next several years, but I don't think he ever does an actual script, which is unfortunate. But at least we get some more Batman artwork out of him, including that really weird story where he drew the Batman that was in a fake comic and a comic within the comic. That that's really odd when we get to that. It's in Detective. It's a really odd story. Yeah. <laughs> so is that it? We ready to take a break and then come back with listener feedback? I think so. Let's do it. 
Hello, this is Ashford from Feathers and Foes and the Batgirl Cassandra Kane podcast. As some of you know, I do a show called Straight Out of Gallifrey, where we discuss Doctor Who episodes featuring other Time Lords. Now, we are having a 64 companion tournament where old and new Who companions will square off with only one victory remaining. Blogger Siskoy, Tim from the Blue Beetle podcast, Corey, and the Irredeemable Shack will join me in this no-holds-barred tournament. If you want a chance to win a River Song box set autographed by Alex Kingston, go to straightoutofgallifrey.blogspot.com and on Twitter at SoGallifrey. Amy Pond, download the bracket, Charlie, fill it out before Austin, May Captain 1st, 2017. Email it to me Nautil, at pridonian.post at gmail.com or send it to me at Twitter at SOGallifrey and you will have a chance to win. The air date for the tournament will be on Cinco de Mayo, 2017. Remember, somewhere there's danger. Somewhere there's injustice, and somewhere else, the tea is getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. Nightcast, episode 10, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange at Dr. Ange70, Bat at Shapirak, Beatlemania, Bill Bear, BoldOutlaw.com, Brad Dade, Codeman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Superheroes at Comic Hero 62, DS and RS, Dylan A. Lang, J. David Weeder, Jim Bal, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Longbox Crusade, Mark Wiggins, Martin Gray, Phil at Isolated Tops, Robert Lewis, World Spine Podcast, Slangword Resists, Stephen Bird, Ted Kilvington, The Comic Book Guy, Treasury Comics, Warlord Worlds, and Willie Yarbrough. Over on Facebook, the last episode receives likes and shares from Alan Wright, Brad Dade, Brian Cray, Brian Morse, Charlie Niemeyer, Chip Deese. Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics, Daniel Doherty, David Foster, David Goldborn, Dale Dale, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, Eric Royer, H. Daniel Rybolt, Igor Glushkin, Jeremy Gunter, John Grenier, Jonathan Dye, Josh Yoder, Ken Holtzhauser, Laurel Phillips, Leslie Trigg III, Liam Mortimer, The Longbox Crusade, Mark Belktron, Martin Gray, Mike Peacock, Pat Sampson, Patrick Delmore, Rob Kelly, Robert McDonald, Scott Cage, The Irredeemable Shag, Simon Richardson, Siskoid, Steve J. Rogers, Stephen Bird, Supermates Podcast, who the hell are those people, <laughs> and Van Z. All right, moving on to the comments we received on the Fire & Water website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Before we tackle the comments from the last show, we are going to back up a few uh, and respond to some of the comments left on previous episodes. And we got a couple of comments from Vera Wild, the first one after Detective Comics 570 reacting to our discussion about Ron the Prostitute, the discussion that we can never get away from. It just keeps coming back, and it's so, so much fun. Uh, Vera said, I'm glad you guys took a few minutes to examine Rhonda. To put it bluntly, I miss the content prostitute as a character archetype. It's gone the way of the functional alcoholic as something that's just not shown anymore. That Batman seems not only happy to see her, as you noted perhaps a bit too happy, but also is insistent on a certain level of respect towards her is something I can't imagine we would ever have depicted now. Rhonda feels rather in line with Jamie Lee Curtis's character from Trading Places. You know the whole, I don't do drugs, I don't have a pimp, this place is a dump, but it's cheap and it's clean and it's all mine, woman making her way, using what talent she has to their full extent. Today, prostitution and sex work in general is always depicted as something women are 
forced into or otherwise turned to out of desperation so extreme that it borders on fetishistic. And while that does happen, the reality is that people get into sex work for a multitude of reasons, just like any other criminal enterprise. We still have thieves in our fiction who do it for the thrill and have some degree of honor, but we won't extend that to sex work anymore because that might give female characters too much agency. Nope, there needs to be a crippling drug problem or a violent pimp involved, lest we allow a woman to control her life in any meaningful way. Um, yeah. You know, I can see your point, but I kind of wonder, I think a lot of times they don't want to, I think writers, specifically male writers, don't want to write the quote-unquote happy prostitute because they probably feel like, you know, that's being irresponsible. That's being sexist of them to think that, okay, well, this woman's happy being a prostitute. You know, it's 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 a slippery slope. You know, I mean, it's, I, it, it's kind of a dicey issue because you're getting into a lot of gender issues there. And, you know, it's – yeah, I, I can see your point, but I kind of wonder sometimes if, if the reason that you don't see the Rhonda-type characters anymore is just because, you know, it just – it's – prostitution is, is looked at. You know, it's – there's been so much about, you know, well, what makes women get into prostitution and this and that. And so they think that they – that the char- any character that's a prostitute has to have a horrible backstory, you know, I think, to get into it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Maybe it's – it might be a bit overcompensating or going the other way, but yeah, that's – I think there's probably some validity to that. Like – Socially, it, we feel more conscious about human trafficking and and the plight of actually like sex trafficking as a criminal enterprise. That it seems to write the sort of content or honorable prostitute feels disrespectful to that, or like it's not taking that uh, seriously uh, as a form of slave trade. So maybe they're thinking that they like they don't want to be disrespectful that way. I, that's that's possible. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, staying close to that topic, uh, Vera came back with a lengthy but very insightful comment on Selena's depiction in Batman 404. Still catching up and late to the conversation, but let's talk about Selina and how every other commenter appears down on the revised origin. Before I start, I'll put out there that I'm of two minds on it overall. It admittedly bugs me that the only female characters of note in the story are a nagging wife, the subject of an extramarital affair, and a sex worker, and personally would rather they were just no women and made it a man story through and through. But for today, I'm taking up the defensive position as I put on my educator hat and go to bat for Selina. I get the distinct impression that part of what is making people down on the idea of Selena as a sex worker is all of the baggage that comes with the pop culture stereotypes of the hooker. However, we have no evidence that Selena is a prostitute. What she very clearly is depicted as is a dominatrix, and while both can be correctly labeled as sex workers, they are not the same thing. A prostitute has sex in exchange for money. A dominatrix need not have sex with her clients, nor indeed engage in even a single instance of genital or skin-to-skin contact at all, and I think if people understood that better, they wouldn't be so down on this development. The modern stereotype of the prostitute, as I talked about in my last comment is the down-and-out girl, probably on drugs, possibly tricked or forced into the trade. I'm not going to go into how accurate or representative that is, because regardless, it is still the pop culture stereotype. So when people process the new origin as Selena is a hooker, they have to contend with the ideas that she isn't the in-control thrill-seeker that so many claim to love, because the stereotypical hooker isn't those things. However, a professional dominatrix very cleanly fits into these notions. A prostitute can be a drugged-out passive victim. A dominatrix can't. 
they have to be in control of both themselves and the situation. That is literally what they are being paid for, and I shouldn't even have to explain how thrill-seeking plays into things. And it also requires a level of commitment that is deeper than the stereotypical streetwalker. You can't just slap on a skirt that you went at with a pair of scissors to make it shorter. You need appropriate-looking clothes, consistent, dominating. You need gear that's well-made so it can stand up to repeated use. You need to be prepared to sink money into your business so that you can continue to do it. It takes a level of dedication and desire seen less often in prostitution, especially stereotypical pop culture prostitution. I don't know if Miller himself properly understood or appreciated the differences I'm laying out, given his later blending of dominatrices and hookers in the noir stew that is Sin City. However, it's a distinction that is important because Selena as a prostitute and Selena being a dominatrix say potentially polar opposite things about her as a character at this point in her life. And I've just realized that between this and my thoughts on Rhonda in the last episode, I may have just inadvertently become the unofficial sex work educator of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to put Vera on retainer anytime we need uh, some information on the subject for, for future episodes. If David um, Ace Gutierrez can be the executive producer of Pod Dylan, <laughs> then she can be the sex educator of, <laughs> Nightcast. of uh, Nightcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and credit where it is due, I do want to mention that Diablo Frank did try to call attention to the distinction uh, of being something like a dominatrix versus a prostitute in his comment. Um, I think we just kind of glossed over it or ignored it because it's Frank, um, right. <laughs> and we just assumed he was being adversarial or, <laughs> or confrontational just because that's his, his thing. So, yeah, I mean, with that in mind, if if we knew specifically that she wasn't engaging in the physical act of sex, if she was just a dominatrix would that change our thoughts on this new version of Selena? Does that keep in line with who she was before the crisis, or is it still... I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, it'll probably keep Batman from catching any STDs, maybe, <laughs> but it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that might have been a little harsh, but because uh, apparently, you know, we can't be, you know, can't be down on hookers now. Come on, guys. Uh, but but no, I mean, it's it's uh, I don't know if it changes it, you know, because I mean, she may have been a dominatrix, but she did have a pimp or I don't well, I don't know if the Stan was her pimp, but he was Holly's pimp and Selena and Holly are living together. So I kind of feel like, you know, that she's working with Stan, too. I mean, you know, it's. I don't know if it really changes that. I guess I guess it does change. You know, I I, I can see Vera's point that you know you know it, the gear of a of a, a dominatrix would lean in the direction of a Catwoman, especially if you go into like the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I mean that's straight up. You know, mm-hmm. I mean so I mean and of course the whip and everything. So I mean it does make more sense that she would be a dominatrix than a prostitute. It honestly does, but. Uh, does that change anything as far as people getting kind of an icky feeling that, ooh, Catwoman's a sex worker? You know, I mean, it's – I don't really think it, uh, it – it maybe makes it a little less, you know, because there might not be, like she said, skin-to-skin skin contact or things like that. But it's still kind of – it's still in that – you know, sullying up area that, uh, that, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is Miller, uh, from, uh, uh, Sin City, you know, like she said, of course, you know, Frank Miller had previously made Selena run a call girl service right. in the dark night, you know? So, I mean, and there was a Wonder Woman costume that the Joker put her in that apparently 
you got to kind of figure it was there as one of the costumes that the girls would wear because uh, he ties her up in a Wonder Woman costume. So, I, you know, yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it really changes that much or not. But Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to rationalize this and trying to stifle the the puritanical part of my brain that's that's thinking that engaging in any sort of sex work somehow diminishes the character because I don't agree with that it just sort of like kind of like just pops up and I'm having to shut up that part of my brain but I do think even if she is still the one in control even if she's not engaging in you know physical sexual contact with the with the partner even if she's just the dominatrix I still think that is different than the previous idea of her being a thief a jewel thief who does it for the thrills that that sort of thrill seeking danger seeking addict right because I mean, she is Catwoman. Sex is part of her nature. But to say that that was her vocation before she became, before she put on the costume, feels a little bit on the nose. Whereas I like the fact that, like, the sexuality of her is somewhat incidental, that it just comes out of her attitude, her behavior, and her dress. But it's not the job. The job is stealing for money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that... it, it's. I don't necessarily think like the distinction between being a hooker and a dominatrix. I don't know that that distinction is what my hang up is on this reboot so much as it is changing from being a jewel thief who uses sex as a weapon to throw Batman off his game versus being a sex worker turned costumed vigilante type of character. Well, you know, if you go by the revelation of the, the Earth 2 Catwoman that, that Alan Brennard put in the, the Brave and the Bold number, I think it was 197, mm-hmm. that he, he revisited that whole Golden Age story that, you know, she had convinced Batman that she had had amnesia. That's why she became Catwoman. She was a stewardess or something. No, she she had a husband that beat her, and uh, he was wealthy, and she decided to uh, get revenge on him, and, and you know, she stole uh, his jewelry and she got a, got to liking it and, and she became a jewel thief, you know? And so that, see that, that's a way to give her, and I hate to use this word cause I'm so freaking sick of it agency, uh, cause everybody's using it, but that, but that, that gave her agency without, you know, having to dip into, you know, the kind of nebulous world of sex work, you right. know what I mean? So, right. I mean, you know, it's, that part just always feels like that's a Miller indulgence. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's the stuff Miller will go play in that playground in Cincinnati, as Vera points out. Maybe he really doesn't even know the distinctions between things because just based on what I've read of Sin City in the movies, you know, he's mixing dominatrixes and prostitutes left and right together. So, you know, I don't know. Well, if nothing else, Vera's comment gave some of our listeners uh, more knowledge than they thought they would have on dominatrices. So, cool. Sure. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I you know, I never <laughs> – <laughs> I never gave it that much thought, but but thanks for educating us, and we'll you know we'll definitely uh, we'll keep you on call as our sex worker educator because it's probably going to come up again, I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully not too often, but yeah, it might. <laughs> Uh, still on the subject of Batman 404, uh, Diablo Frank came in and left a comment, and of course it's Frank, so hang on to something. Uh, Frank says, I've come to the conclusion that I don't enjoy reading along with indexing shows, but I make exceptions where I feel compelled to. I debated about whether to join you on this year one reread, but I bought the hardcover in 2005 and never cracked it open, so it's been at least 12 years since my last pass. Might as well sharpen my knives and dive into another sacred cow. 
except based on the first issue, I have no cause for complaint. What? <laughs> Frank? I think we just end this comment right now. <laughs> it's just over. Yeah. <laughs> Insert record scratch sound effect here. What? <laughs> uh, he says, year one is just as engrossing, cinematic, and novelistic as my best memories of my first read around 1989 or 1990. I only read one of the four issues off a newsstand, so I know it best as a collected edition, and that seems to be the ideal experience. Gazing at the scans from the floppies, it looks like a reverse turnerization was done, taking a day-glow and pastel hot mess of ill-considered coloring and turning it into an appropriately muted masterpiece. Even 30 years ago, I wasn't keen on an expanded retread of Batman's origin, but the new noir Jim Gordon material made the character and story come alive for me. There's a lot of proto-Sin City here, but I prefer Miller veering toward Chandler and Hammett over the more lurid Spillane and Neotech Noir of the latter work. As much as I adore period Trevor Von Eden, his work is also better suited for the latter, and you needed the more earthy minimalism of David Mazzuccelli to fully realize this piece. I just finished the first issue after willing myself to stop from progressing, and I saw no blatant references to Von Eden. Then after that, Frank goes on to talk about his reading history with Year One and with The Dark Knight Returns, how he originally liked Dark Knight more, but then their positions kind of flipped the last time he reread them, which is probably true of a lot of people. I know that was my take. Mm-hmm. Um, and Frank comes back again at the end to say, I love that this podcast began with the lost epic Batman 400, so I both understand bypassing The Dark Knight Returns and recognize that you guys need to tackle it inevitably, since it casts a long shadow over every Bat book published since. Perhaps you can do an anniversary or annual shows for that type of extant material. I don't know. What do you think? Where, If we do The Dark Knight Returns, where would be the place to do it? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people seem to want us to do it. Um, you know, I, that's not a bad idea, an anniversary issue or or like a special annual, you know, throw in somewhere. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea. I think I think the, the I think people want us to do it. I think we're going to have to just say we're going to do it at some point. <laughs> I mean, it, it would have made sense to do it at the beginning, but it was just so big that I didn't want that to be the first thing that we chew. It might have turned <laughs> turned us off of the project. So. Right. Yeah. And you know, and in people, I don't know. I think that's that's such a big project in a, in a way. I think even though you and I are have been on this network and have our own shows and stuff. I don't know. I think we needed to start with something that wasn't quite the magnum opus that, right. that that was, you know, it's like, you're like, what are they, what do these guys know? You know, it's <laughs> like, I mean, not saying that it makes just because we're having a podcast makes us experts or anything, but you know, we've got several, you know, runs and lots of issues under our belt. Ah, it makes it a little more, well, you know, these guys might know a thing or two about Batman. So, Ooh, you know, I, I just had a thought and I might, I'll probably cut this out. What if we... I think we're going to have to think about how we want to cover the Dark Knight Returns at some point. We've got some ideas. We'll, we'll definitely we'll have some ideas and some announcements for that in the future, I guess. Yep. Uh, we got another belated comment on Batman number 404, this time from Ward Hill Terry, who said, I was getting ready to write a note of apology to you as I was listening to most every other podcast except this one, and I felt I was letting you down. However, when I saw that you were dissecting, discussing year one, I tuned in. 
I hadn't been listening because this was when I stopped buying Batman books regularly. I'm pretty sure I've got all the issues of Batman and Detective you've already reviewed, but I have little desire to reread them because I did not enjoy them. This was part of the confluence of my dislike of post-crisis continuity and decreasing comics purchasing. Batman Year One, I remember. This is a very good comic. This is a very well-done comic. It is not a good Batman story. This story, though superbly presented, makes too many changes to Batman's backstory for my taste. I realize that changes were always being made, and I'm not so wedded to previous continuity that I'll refuse to accept any Batman that doesn't reference Leslie Tompkins, Mrs. Chilton, and Dr. Dundee. However, this story was too much for me. Number one, Bruce's absence from Gotham. I don't like it. Now he's a stranger to Gotham. He knows nothing of his geography, topography, infrastructure, or citizenry. He's starting from scratch with no visceral or emotional connection to Gotham. Don't like it. Number two, Bruce's age. The text says he's 25. I think that's too old. It means he's been suppressing the hunt for his parents' killer for that much longer. I prefer to think of Bruce putting on a costume from about 21 to 21 years of age. Number three, Alfred the permanent fixture since childhood. I don't like this. What's he been doing while Bruce was away? Commissioning portraits of Thomas and Martha at Bruce's request? (laughs) Making Christmas dinners just in case the master shows up? (laughs) I like that idea. Uh, Without Alfred, Bruce has no ready father figure which I think works better. Also, having Alfred there makes Bruce a passive character, especially in the final scene. It is a powerful and dramatic scene, but it's Bruce being Hamlet, wondering whether or not to die, securing the knowledge that Alfred could save him. The rich man rings his bell and is waited upon immediately. The hero would confront his mistakes and his options and act upon them. Number four, Gordon the Outsider. This works beautifully in this story, but I prefer Gordon the Gothamite. Gordon the career cop, the clean career cop, a Gordon who has, like Bruce should have, a deep connection to Gotham. I also miss Barbara as his daughter. Having a younger Gordon just having his first child and an older Bruce makes for a good story, but not what I like in a Batman story. Number five, Gotham as a failed city. This is great for this story. My problem is that ever since this story, this has been the go-to depiction of Gotham, which means that Batman and Gordon have failed. If Gotham is still a failed city after years of Bat progress, then he has failed. Number six, Selina Kyle. She has probably never had a good origin, amnesia, falling out of buildings or airplanes, etc. And this one continues the trend. Why a sex worker? She seems to be an independent operator. Why become a thief? Why not a veterinarian or animal shelter volunteer who is frustrated at the lack of funding and needs dough to help her cats? That's her motivation. The costume is a gimme because in this universe, people wear these costumes. Number seven, violence. Frank Miller's superhero stories always have violence and tremendous detail. Uh, Written descriptions of internal injuries, depictions of bloodied combatants, etc. In this story, Bruce is prepared for violence. The men are all adept at it, to the exclusion of almost everything else. I'm glad you guys talked about this. Where is the detective? Bruce's narration says he is ready to fight. It doesn't say he is ready to learn. I like a smart Batman. A smart Batman is one who has spent many years learning the terrain, studying all the players, preparing to hunt it for his quarry. He has practiced disguising himself in many different ways. He has had to do it on his own. Eventually, he realizes that he can do more with cooperation with the police and his household and even other costume vigilantes. The Lego Batman movie got this so right. I'll stick with you for the next three chapters, but oh, I don't know. You guys are great podcasters. I love listening to you. Thanks for indulging me here. Uh, <laughs> well, it's nice to get a different opinion, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, and, and I can totally see where he's coming from. Uh, I mean, as, as somebody, I was just, you know, I have not been as open to uh, change in my Batman as, uh, you know, I, I have not, I didn't like, 
I can't get past some of the stuff Morrison's done to Batman, and 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 even even though Scott Snyder's supposed to be the second coming of great Batman writers, I think it's well written. But I don't like some of the things he's done and mm-hmm. and the way they've changed the book. So I this is a completely valid opinion, you know. <laughs> so it is, it is, and he he brings up good points. Uh, they're subjective points. I mean, they're not flaws with the story. They're problems that butt up against a desire or a preconceived idea of who and what Batman should be. And that's okay, because we all have that. So I think, I mean, we can just kind of go through his list of some of the the elements. Bruce's absence from Gotham. I mean, he does make a good point that Batman should know Gotham City on a cellular level, and he should really kind of know the streets, know the feeling. Maybe having him gone for most of that time was too much of a stretch. I mean, we do see, I mean, he, he doesn't put on the costume for the first couple of months. You know, once he's back, he, he does some reconnaissance. He, he travels around, he walks the streets, he gets to know the area. I think that's okay, but I mean, you, you could argue that maybe he could have come back a little bit. I do like the idea of Bruce Wayne who travels the world, who acquires mm-hmm. his skills from different people, gets out of the city, isn't there the entire time, but maybe not the self-imposed exile so that he hasn't seen Gotham, he hasn't breathed that air in over a decade. That might be too much. Uh, in terms of the age, either 20 or 25, I mean, I could sort of split the difference and say, like, it, I mean, it, it kind of depends. Like, I, I think, you know, you don't how how quickly, how smart is Bruce? How quickly would he have graduated from college? How prepared is he for a professional adult life? I mean, I don't want to look at Bruce Wayne out of the Batman costume and think that's still just a kid uh, because he's he's got to be older and and wiser if you, we believe that he's going to take on a kid partner like Robin eventually. Right. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I guess it just sort of depends on like the the physical and emotional maturity of the character um what about the nature of alfred and the father figure is actually going to be something that ward comes back to in his comments after last issue uh so i kind of want to save uh some of those ideas well me personally with alfred i mean i think that's one of the better contributions uh, that stuck in the canon i think alfred being the wayne family butler and helping raise bruce is the Batman equivalent of the Kents living into Clark's adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it gives the character a sounding board. Uh, it gives them a, a, a support structure. And with Batman, you know, where Superman, you know, when something bad happened, you know, the, the post-crisis Superman would come home and, you know, sit at the table and eat a piece of pie and, you know, rhubarb pie or whatever and, and talk to Ma and Pa and get things, you know, settled out in his brain by, you know, bouncing his worries off of them. But, you know, Batman was resistant to that with Alfred. I mean, Alfred had to really work on him to get through the exterior armor, you know, and right. and it, it it there's a lot of great stories and great moments that came out of that. And so, I, you know, I, I really have absolutely no problem. I mean, I, I did kind of like the old in the Untold Legend of the Batman, how they showed, you know, Alfred just showed up to work there because his dad had worked there. And, <laughs> and Bruce and Dick are like, oh, what are we going to do about this guy? And it just so happened that shortly after Alfred came, Batman was actually shot. Uh, you know, in a rare instance, and, and Robin, you know, a desperate Robin, uh, you know, brings him up through the Batcave entrance and, entrance and says, he needs help, Alfred, you know, we're Batman and Robin, help us, you know, and that's how he found out. So, but, you know, that was a great little story, but I, I wouldn't trade it for Alfred being a, you know, surrogate father figure. It's It just, it just worked out great. 
Uh, yeah, I, I do think the the importance of Alfred as his his supporting character, his support staff in term in terms of just conveying exposition and filling that void. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about the the nature of the father figure uh, and a later comment. In terms of the one of the other points that were brought up with the violence and Bruce, you know, fighting more than he does detecting, that is a point that I think becomes a lot more apparent in later years after the story, but. In just sort of the nature of this particular Batman story, this isn't Batman a detective story. This is a crime fighter. Uh, That's what he's doing. He's not trying to solve the puzzle pieces together to put Carmine Falcone behind bars. He's just trying to beat up all of his people so they're scared to be on the street. Right. It's It's establishing his rep, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's a different type of Batman. This is Batman crime fighter, not necessarily detective you can say that this kind of became the status quo and that more Batman stories since then have been all about Batman beating up criminals rather than solving mysteries and crimes. That could very well be true. I don't know if it's right to blame this story for that. It's just where maybe it where it began, but yeah, I'm sure it was it was prevalent before this too. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, on to the comments from the last episode where we covered Batman 405, which was the second part of year one. And as usual, we won't be reading every single comment, but we encourage our listeners to go to the website because that's where a lot of good conversation happens uh, in the comments threads. First up, our comments from Rob Kelly, who said, After the debacle of Batman and Robin, there was a rumor that Darren Aronofsky would be helming a Batman Year One movie. I remember thinking that the None of You Are Safe sequence would have made the perfect trailer for such a movie. You wouldn't even need to show anything else. Just that scene in full, ending with Bats putting out the lights. Cut to the title card, Batman Year One. Who wouldn't want to have seen that movie? Oh, yeah. That would be good, yeah. Yeah, that I mean, I remember when that was going around and and it was kind of weird because it kind of it went away from him. And then, you know, Nolan's name come in and it was still like, oh, it's still kind of a year one movie. But of course, it became a less literal translation of Batman year one. So, yeah, I remember hearing Darren Aronofsky is attached to it for a while. And then I think David Fincher at one point and this would have been after Fight Club. uh, So he would have been an interesting choice for for directing that. But yeah. Yeah, and at one time there was a Batman Beyond movie being thrown idea thrown around around the same time too. So it who who knows which way it could have went. I mean, it, it could have been in a totally different direction, you know. So yeah, yeah. Uh, and after that comment, there were there were some uh, side chats between you and Nathaniel Wayne and David Ace Gutierrez. So listeners can check that out in the comments. Uh, getting back to Rob's comment. Speaking of, I truly believe that scene is one of Batman's finest. He's referring to the none of you are safe moment. Uh, I truly believe that scene is one of Batman's finest, coolest moments in a career full of writers and artists trying to deliver such signature moments. It's not Batman breaking anyone's face or chasing the Joker or Penguin, which are, after all, merely symptoms of Gotham's corruption, but instead the Dark Knight going after the powerful and untouchable elements of Gotham society. He scares the living guano out of them, which is 90% of Batman's job. The rest is just finding the evidence and leaving the baddies tied up to a lamppost outside GCPD headquarters. <laughs> I love the notion of Batman buying his gear at Lowe's. I'm sure he was happy when they installed self-checkout. <laughs> I genuinely laughed out loud at the mini play you two performed, which, had anyone been around while I was running in the dark of night, might have seemed really creepy. <laughs> You're welcome. 
he says, regarding the feedback, I mostly disagree with the notion that the Scarecrow story from Detective 571 should have been two issues. If anything, I think most Batman stories should be one and dones. These villains are all gimmick-based, and I think giving them multi-issue arcs stretches their respective premises too far. Also, if Frank is looking for another great or memorable Scarecrow stories, I point him to The Brave and the Bold 197, the aforementioned story by uh, Alan Brenner and Joe Staten. A classic, of course it is. Yeah, that's odd. I brought that up. I forgot that Rob brought it up in the comments. But yeah, yeah yes. Go read that story. Go Just go out to in-stock trades and buy the, the Batman by Alan Brenner hardcover. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob is right. That, that none of you are safe moment is a truly wonderful, amazing Batman moment. One of the best, yeah. Right. And I mean, it. you know, he I, I thought Batman, you know, Batman is serving notice. And when I said that, I heard I heard Ned Betty say he's serving notice here. You know, <laughs> if I serve notice, he's serving notice. Uh, but, uh, you know, he basically says, you know, this is it. You know, your free ride's over. And for the last uh, 75, almost 80 years, he's been dogging him ever since. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the it's the there's a new sheriff in town moment and it's done unlike any other. But it's so wonderful. Yeah. Yes, it's fantastic. Uh, we got a comment from Dr. Ange who said, Like Rob, I think the Your Feast is Over scene is the scene from this book. And yes, it'll be a perfect trailer. That is who Batman is. But there's that humanizing by seeing him take out the chauffeurs and set up the fog lamp. Brilliant. Mazzuchelli is just masterful here. It is funny that Chris brings up the panel with Batman being shot in the leg. There are almost no lines in that panel, but you feel Batman stumble from that. So much action is just implied in the art that it makes it just incredible. The same with Batman diving to save the bag lady. As you say, there is a feeling of hope and rising above the grime in this whole series. Gordon not killing the maniac. Batman grabbing the young thief that was going to fall over the fire escape even though he opens himself up to a beating. Even later when Batman singles out the cop who wanted to shoot the stray cat. I love that part. we got to get to that part. It shows that these two are trying to elevate the city, which is sinking. Love all of this book. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree 100%. <laughs> right, right. Good, good stuff, yeah. Uh, Chris Carnes said, Chris, I loved your Kevin Smith comments. Yeah. <laughs> and I almost told you to take those out. But you're like, no, no, I'm going to leave it in there. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he also says, Ryan, yeah, I didn't realize the BTO connection to the rock band until later. Wasn't sure if anyone else would notice, but yes, I like the band. <laughs> uh, there you go. Lewis said, thanks to the episode, now I'll be hearing Bobcat reciting the, I want you to remember this Clark speech from The Dark Knight Rises, and trying not to imagine a killing joke pantomime with Minnie the, and Black Pete and a Hawaiian. <laughs> that disturbed everyone, I think. Uh, Batman Begins is my favorite of the Nolan trilogy, despite its imperfections. You touched on one of them when you credited the equal footing Gordon and Bats have, starting out in year one. In the film, Gordon wasn't getting the right people angry so much as resigned to the status quo until Batman uplifted him. You know, that's a good point until these comments. I never... I guess I hadn't really thought of that since I first saw the movie, but basically Gordon was a, a decent person who was just standing by and just he wasn't getting involved in the corruption, but he wasn't doing anything to stop it either. He he resigned himself to the fact that, you know, this is the way it is, you know, and he was which is, yeah, he was defeated. He knew that he couldn't change it. He didn't have the power to do these things. And I think he was just older and more jaded, which actually goes on to uh, another point that I either were already brought up or he will. The idea of Gordon being a, a veteran of Gotham City, being a, a Gothamite 
and kind of knowing the system versus him kind of coming in fresh from outside, which he is in Batman Year One, maybe gives him some of that juice, that sense of, you know, really coming in and changing things from the outside. Whereas if he had been, you know, in Gotham for 20 years, you know, the night that the Waynes were murdered, probably by then he would have seen that there is no changing things the way he, he works, and he would have just been, you know, sadder and more cynical. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and Nathaniel Wayne kind of jumped on that same point and responded to Lewis saying, Maybe I'm alone, but I like the idea of a resigned Gordon for a couple of reasons. The first being that I've always just liked the idea of somebody who knows they can't fix the screwed up world they live in, but is just trying to be the best person they can within that screwed up world. I just enjoy that as a character dynamic in general. But additionally, I like the idea of Bruce refiring a passion that Gordon probably once had but has lost. The one thing I will say is that having Gordon put the coat on a young Bruce is a step further than I care for because it's the kind of unneeded connection that makes the world feel smaller. Yeah, I agree with that. Whether or not Gordon was a longtime member of the Gotham Police Department, I don't like him you know, being on the scene the night the Waynes were killed and having that moment with Bruce. I never thought that was necessary. Yeah, I thought that was a little, that was, I mean, it's not the Joker killing the Waynes, but it's it's venturing into that same territory, you know, where everything's so small. I mean, even if they just had Gordon walk past and see Bruce but not interact with him and feel bad for him, that would have been a little bit better than him getting involved in it. Yeah. Uh, our favorite Australian who likes to punch koalas, Paul Hicks, wrote in and said, so did you like this or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think we were very clear with uh, the last issue with year one. I, I think we still kind of seemed on the fence. Yeah, even Frank likes this, okay? <laughs> so <it's> a... <laughs> uh, the comment I kept, uh, I kept foreshadowing. Ward Hill Terry came back. He said, great job, guys. I responded to your previous year one review in order to express my thoughts about what I see as the weaknesses of the story. I stated that it is a great comic book, but not a great Batman story. I have been thinking about it since then. What I dislike about this particular story is the amount of time Bruce is absent from Gotham. The more that I thought about it, the more I think that Bruce needs a person in his life to be his moral guidepost, who is not Alfred. We are shown in this issue that Batman takes pains, literally, to not kill and to save lives. This is above and beyond the easy description of revenge-seeking costumed vigilante. In the story, Gordon recognizes this, and it is crucial to the development of that relationship. What I, the reader, miss is the background. Ever since 1988, the Batman's origin stresses his travels and his fighting training, not his moral and humanitarian education. In my previous letter, I lamented the absence of figures from the previous continuities, like Leslie Tompkins, Mrs. Chilton, and Uncle Philip. I only know of Uncle Philip from a brief mention in The Untold Legend of the Batman, but I have been thinking about what a great character he could be in Bruce's development. He could be someone who may not be terribly emotional, or there's always a kind of distance between him and Bruce, but eminently practical as well as a bit jaded. He is the one who teaches Bruce how to present himself in public, at formal events, as an heir to a great fortune, while also letting Bruce know how much of an act it is. How one speaks and how one dresses is how one will be judged in many places. Perhaps he is the one who starts Bruce questioning the value of organized crime fighting. Not that he would openly deride the police force or the FBI, but subtly get Bruce to question where he would fit in such organizations. Uncle Philip could show Bruce the value of morality, the importance of honor, and having a moral code with perhaps a healthy skepticism of organized religion and other such institutions. I think this is what is missing from the Batman origin. Soon, in the story under review, Gordon is going to meet Bruce Wayne and not be impressed. 
but how does Bruce know how to act like the fop? Convincingly. He still needs to know what champagne to order, which labels to wear, as well as which stocks to buy. That's what he learns from staying in Gotham with Uncle Philip. He susses out early on, once he has determined he can't fulfill his mission from within the system, that he needs to have some sort of built-in alibi to cover his crime-fighting work. He then begins to construct Bruce Wayne billionaire to be that cover. That is what is missing from this story. Bruce Wayne, here one. Hmm. You know, I I can kind of, again, I can kind of see his point. I think you kind of get that as we fill in the backstory of Batman. And, you you know, we didn't, we never knew in the golden age who raised Bruce Wayne after his parents died. You know, I mean, so, I mean, you know, there's never been a case where it's like this happened and this happened, this where we knew everything. You know, in a few issues in Detective, we're going to find out that Leslie Tompkins figured in a lot heavier into the post-crisis Batman's upbringing than she did in the the Mm -hmm. pre-crisis and we're gonna you know along the way while we're doing this series we'll bump into some of the people Bruce Wayne trained with along the way and there's actually a you know a pretty good uh, when we did the uh, the Secret Origins the final episode of Secret Origins we covered the the man who falls and you get that you know Bruce learned from Harvey Harris who was a compassionate detective but he also learned from Ducard who was a you know a ruthless bounty hunter basically and so he chose uh, you know where his moral alignment was from basically the people he that helped train him and that he met in his travels so. I think they did fill those places. I mean, I can understand. I understand the part about not knowing the social uh, graces and and how to act as the the millionaire playboy. But in a lot of ways, that's where they bring the Lucius Fox character up in like Batman Begins. You know, he fills in the and he also provides him the tech, but he, you know, the the basically the running of the company and everything. So, I mean, I, I thought that was actually a, a really uh, good. Plus, it was Morgan Freeman. So he instantly bought anything he said, you know. So. Right. So. But, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that now the part about him acting, not knowing the city and acting and, and how does he know how to act the fop that that part? Yeah, I can kind of see. But if you go with. You know, even other versions like the animated series showing training with Zatara and, mm-hmm. you know, so he learned about theatricality and, and you know, you know, how to present himself and, and on stage and things. So you can you can fill in the blanks with the different people he met along the way for the most part, I think. Yeah. And to the last line that Ward presents here, that what is missing from the story is Bruce Wayne year one. I agree that would be a different story. I'm not sure it's necessarily a story that interests me. Um, I, I also think it's it's important to note, like within this world, like yeah, Bruce Wayne, he's been traveling, he's been away, but you know, I, I don't think he necessarily went to Nanda Parbat when he was 11 years old, and he's been you know isolated, just studying karate and, and kung fu moves and stuff since then. He still would have gone through school, he still would have gone to college at these super elite, prestigious places where his social circles would have been the type of people who know what champagne to order or how to act in public and just by observing the people around him his friends whether or not he has like an emotional connection to them or not he still would have been in the world i don't necessarily think he would need an uncle figure to teach him how to act like a billionaire he would just kind of grow up in that environment right Um, and between alfred between lucius between the uncle philip character or leslie topkins like i like them but i think they need to sort of be at an arm's distance from Bruce because I don't think Bruce can really have a true surrogate father, not even like Gordon or Alfred like that, because 
he needs the absence of that. That is what is driving his mission, is the loss of his parents. So if he has adoptive parents coming in to fill that gap, I think it hurts the believability that he's that driven and that obsessed with going out and preventing their deaths again, night after night after night after night after night. So even though it's not believable, I do like the fact that Alfred is sort of the only constant adult in his life after their death. And Alfred can't be his father because Alfred works for him. Like, there's just that the nature of that relationship. Alfred is there to serve him. And he can, you know, impart words of wisdom and some, you know, potable, pithy comments to help you know, steer him in the right direction, but they're just not father and son. They're they're not that way. So can Batman have mentor figures? Yeah, but once if we get that close to familial relationships, I think it hurts the type of Batman that they have that they are building in this world, which is a driven, obsessed Batman who you know can't get over his parents' death. Right. So. Yeah, I agree. MTC said I had to watch a great spoof that College Humor did where Batman was choosing his voice because I didn't remember if Bobcat Goldthwait was one of them he tried out. It's not, but the fact that John Malkovich is one he tried makes it worth seeking out if you haven't seen it yet. Okay, I'm going to have to go look for this. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't looked at it, like, yeah, everybody go check out the College Humor website or they're on YouTube and find out they have got a series of Batman shorts with just a really stupid Batman based on the Nolan ones. And it, they are hilarious. Like, they over-exaggerate the voice. But, like, there's one with Patton Oswalt where they got him to play the Penguin. Um, and it's, like, Batman, like, is killing these guys, but he's still saying, like, he believes in his one rule where he doesn't kill. And they're like, no, you just killed that guy. You threw a battering through his eyeball. And he's like, he's not dead. He's just sleeping. And it's like Penguin and Gordon are, like, looking at him and like, you can't be that dumb. And they're like, do you not know what death is? Like, what what happened to your parents? He's like, they went on, they went to the farm. <laughs> it's like, they went to a farm. He's like, yeah, they're on, a, they're on a special farm. It's like, where my dog went or something. He's like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's like, did you ever have, like, a fish that died? He's like, like, what happened to your fish is what you just did to that penguin henchman. He's like, I overfed that man. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go see this. Yeah, you gotta I, check this out. There was a there was a, a YouTube series. It was like a kid that was dressed as Batman. He, he, <laughs> the kid couldn't have been like eleven or twelve years old, and he was he had he had the mask on, and he was doing the uh, uh, the 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 bail voice. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, he was like you know just like talking to his mom, you know about. You know, getting him cereal and in the voice, you know, and and he kept and, and Andrew, my son Andrew was watching them. And for the longest time, we, we got we got cracked up, watched them. And we, he just occasionally go justice and do something <laughs> crazy. And it just it, that's what it made me think of. So oh, I, it's it's time to go watch some stupid Batman videos on YouTube, I think. Okay. Uh, uh, MTC continues. You're killing it with the songs you're choosing. That's all, Ryan. By the way, no, no, Part you've of, been you've been very helpful with some of them. Oh well, I, yeah, I might help. I might give an idea, but you do all the the editing and everything. <laughs> uh, Part of me hopes you play at least one Exodus song when you get to your year or two coverage. I'm not sure how much the thrash metal is going to come into uh, into the year two coverage. Maybe. <laughs> I hope it doesn't break your heart if I don't choose an Exodus song. A whole lot of people are like, how could you play Don't Fear the Reaper before the year two one? I was like, well, because it really fits that Scarecrow episode, you know? Maybe I I'll, said the same thing, I people. Know, <laughs> I, I know Chris was also like, why isn't that the year two song? I was like, maybe it will be. There's no, there's no rule I can't play it twice. Who says That's I can't true. play it twice? That's right. That's right. So... <laughs> Uh, 
Nathaniel Wayne came back and said, I'm going to do something that's become a bit of a pastime in the last couple of years, defend the show Gotham. But I'm taking a different tack this time from my usual line of, for crying out loud, it's a straight-up Elseworld. Stop bitching about how it doesn't fit any existing continuity, and instead fight you on the idea that Batman's village existing before him does not work. The thing is, not only is the did Batman create his own rogues gallery thing played out to death at this point, it actually gives rise to one of the issues I've seen you both and many other fans have with the character and how he's been shown in recent decades. I've heard plenty of fans bitch about how these days Batman amounts to more of a psychotic thug when he's not being the world's richest paranoid. The thing is, him existing before his villains feeds into that, and I feel is part of why the character can't seem to shake it off. Because, to put it simply, no rational person looks at the effects of corruption, organized crime, and urban blight and thinks, what this city needs is a giant bat. That's the, <laughs> that's the thinking of a crazy person. You can try to back it up with backstory about theatricality and trauma all you want, but that is an insane conclusion no matter how you spin it. But... If the city has already given rise to a criminal element that is patently insane, theatrical, and over-the-top, then a person stepping up to that as a force for justice becomes a more reasoned response to the world they live in. It makes Batman less crazy. Now, is this the angle Gotham is actually going for? Hell if I know, I'm not cut up on the current season. But I'd like you to at least consider the possibility that shaking up Batman's timeline in terms of when some of the things happen in Gotham could have a net positive effect on the character. Hmm. Well, you know, I can kind of see his point because, I mean, one of my things is in the DC universe, it makes perfect sense to go and put a bat costume on. You know, I mean, because especially in the post-crisis timeline, because there was a whole generation of superheroes before this, you know. Yeah, that's what I think, sir. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like Dr. Midnight was already running around and, Mm. you know, so, I mean, it's like, you know, dressing up. That's just that's just something that's just a. Well, I could become a FBI agent or a mystery man. You know, I mean, it's just like, so it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's it's there's a pre-existing precedent that people wear crazy costumes and you know and you know so have a theme and a gimmick and so yeah I, I can see that but I don't know I still it's just it's kind of like you're Bruce Wayne you're one thing it's like if it's not Batman Batman I don't know how interested I am personally. The thing about the villains coming before, and Nathaniel's point is perfectly valid. Uh, it does make Batman less crazy. It's it's a sane response to a crazy world if he puts on a costume to in order to bring down people like the Riddler, the Scarecrow, and the Joker because they're already there. That is sensible, I guess. I just coming to it with the bias of even if you know the Joker and the Penguin and the Mad Hatter and Two Face, even if these characters are not you know, super villains in the sense that they have superpowers, even though they're not like world beaters who can fight toe to toe with Superman. It still feels like the threat they pose should be something that the cops can't handle, that they do need Batman to bring them down. So if they're already around before Batman, like, uh, like what is their body count? Is there, is there like just no law at all in Gotham? Like, can Gordon and the other cops bring Mr. Freeze down without Batman on their own? If not, like if he if Mr. Freeze is around before Batman, how many crimes has he committed? How many people has he killed before Batman was able to show up and stop him? And if he has served one or two sentences in jail already, then is Batman necessary? That's sort of my problem with it. Is if they if the villains are around before the hero, can the cops take care of them without the hero? Mm-hmm. If not, it's whatever, five, ten years 
of just the Wild West lawlessness with no order. And then it's like, okay, the National Guard would have come in here into this town. <laughs> they would have cut it off like no man's land. There you go. Yeah. So. Uh Oh, we got a we we got another comment from our sex worker educated Vera Wild who said uh, I mentioned in my comment last time that I'm of two minds on making Selena a sex worker. So understand that I'm not defending it as some kind of brilliant move. So why attack the retcon? Because of how it demonizes the sex work profession and female sexuality in general. Even if you aren't comfortable with the idea of Catwoman being a sex worker, notice I'm not saying hooker. You can see my comment on the last episode for the reason behind that. The idea that it's so egregious as to require being retcon infuriates me. Why? Because nearly any other past transgression is forgivable for superheroes. We have substance abusers in the form of Tony Stark and Speedy, so drug addiction in the past is fine. We have thieves in the form of Black Cat, Catwoman herself, and so many others. We've got rapists like either borderline like Dakin or Dokken or Wolverine's son, whatever, thanks to pheromones affecting those around him. Or the full-on genuine article like Talia al Ghul. And that's not even getting into all the straight-up murderers who are counted among the good guys. All of these things which are seen as either acceptable or redeemable. But a woman engaging in sex work, using their sexuality to advance or survive, even if so much of that character's look and appeal has been built on BDSM imagery and dynamics for years, even if they're an anti-hero at best, nope, there's no coming back from that kind of history. It's the ultimate stain. Better to erase that altogether. Yeah, sure, Tony Stark killed an ambassador and drank himself to the point of becoming a danger to himself and all those around him. But he felt really bad about it, guys. And maybe that's the thing. Selena would never apologize for her past. And maybe when DC realized they couldn't ever spin an after-school special out of her sex work background, they decided to scrub it. Or maybe it was just a knee-jerk reaction to whiny fans. But regardless of the reason... Screw them for doing it. If they decided they didn't like the backstory anymore, they could have just not brought it up again. Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, yeah, we've talked about this. One of the points, though, in terms of Selena or Catwoman specifically, her, her sex appeal being built on the sort of imagery of the BDSM, that might be taking a more modernistic approach because I'm trying to think at this point when the story is coming out in 1986 or 1987, what had past Catwoman costumes looked like? Uh, well, like, the, the the Julie Newmar costume might be the closest thing that, you know, because it's black and it's shiny and, you know, but I mean, the classic purple gown outfit... You know, the sexiest it was ever drawn we just saw from right. Alan Davis. Well, besides the Dave Stevens who's who drawing. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess in the comics, her outfit never really felt sort of fetishistic. I mean, just probably just the whip would have been the most of it. Right. But you're right, the TV show, which probably would have had a bigger audience than the comics ever did either. I mean, so just more people would have known Catwoman from that. And the Eartha Kid, Julie Newmar, and the outfits did sort of feel more skin-tight black leather, so that imagery could have permeated sort of the view of what Catwoman was like. Okay, that that might be the point that sort of saves it. Um, in terms of the other point that, yes, it is, it does seem a little bit hypocritical to to hold that, like the possibility that she was a sex worker against her when we forgive other characters who've had problems with the law, problems with drugs or substance abuse. I'm going to go out on a limb, though, and say that the creators that retconned that, and I don't remember who wrote that Catwoman annual. I know Chuck Dixon was writing Catwoman at first, but I don't think he stayed on it too long. But I'm going to go out on a limb and think that they changed that for the right reasons. I I think they probably felt like, okay, we've got this female character and we've made her a prostitute. They weren't looking at it as 
you know, it, it gives her, you know, it makes her, you know, she's using what she, her body that she needs to do to survive. It's, it's not an empowering thing. They probably thought it was that it did sully the character. That's, that's probably why they retconned it. It was, they, they probably wanted to free the character up from what they thought was a bad move in, mm-hmm. in, in mainstream continuity. You know, that, that would be my guess. I could be completely wrong, but, you know, that was probably the thinking at the time is it made her less of a strong character. It made her a victimized character because she was, you know, and I know, I know that's, that was Vera's point that, you know, not every person that goes into right. sex work is a victim of, you know, something. They may have chosen to go into that or whatever, but, you know, I, I think that I'm, I'm going to go out, like I said, I'm going to just guess that was what whoever decided this needed to be retcon was thinking at the time. Yeah. All right, moving on. Enough sex talk for a little while. (laughs) All right, moving on. Uh, Martin Gray responded at first to Vera's comment, and then he came back and said, Great episode as ever, chaps. I actually like the original magenta on that splash page. There has to be some color in Batman's world, or else the darkness has no meaning. And he said, I know it's fundamental to the Batman identity, but I can't believe that even in 1939, any criminal would mistake a guy in tights and a cape for a giant bat. Now, if he had fur and a scary mask and actual wings, yeah, man bat would do it. We just have to accept it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's one of those things like Clark Kent's glasses. It's just one of those things that it works better in the comic medium, and it takes a, a very special actor or, or uh, director to, to pull off. You know, the, I, I, think, I thought they did a pretty good job that Burton in the first movie and, and Nolan in, in Batman Begins did a good job of portraying the, the scary bat aspect of Batman. I mean, they, they made him, you know, and they show both movies kind of showed the mechanics behind it, you know, how he looked like he was, that could look like he was floating down, you know, right. on his wings and things. So I, I thought, I thought they did a pretty good, they didn't just, you know, have him show up in the cape. That's, that's one thing I didn't, you know, that's the, the Nolan movies went on, they lost that. Mm-hmm. They, you know, and I mean, in the dark night rises, he's in the middle of the daylight, you know, out in the streets, you know, fighting. He's, he could have been in any suit. He didn't need to be in his Batman suit. It's just because right. he's Batman, you know, so, yeah. Siskoid uh, said, this is the only single issue of year one I own. However, it's not my favorite. You haven't gotten there yet. Mystery! Well, we've got, let's see, we've got a 50-50 shot here. I'm going to say it's, uh, I'm going to say it's Batman 406. I just, it's the next one. I'm just saying. All I right. could be wrong. <laughs> I'll say Batman 407, and whoever loses has to synopsize that issue. <laughs> There you go. Uh, Diablo Frank posted and said, I go on for paragraphs about how great Batman 404 was and not a word of that gets into the podcast. Doesn't play into your negative Nelly narrative, hmm? I am whatever you say I am. Fake news. Remember Bowling Green. (laughs) So... Yeah, just uh, peeking behind the curtains of this podcast, uh, up until now, because you're noticing that this episode is coming out later than it was expected, up until now we've been doing these episodes every two weeks. And what happens is we usually record on the Saturday between the two weeks. So usually when we're recording an episode and the listener feedback segment, the previous episode has only been out for about five or six days so if you're leaving a comment after that point, it's not going to be on that episode. So that's usually j- just the point. So that's why this episode, we went back and revisited so many previous letters and comments because a lot of people had been catching up or just hadn't posted within the time frame. So 
it was also my plan to keep these listener feedback segments shorter, which by now you can tell hasn't really worked out. Yeah, we're we're in like who's who territory here with <laughs> feedback. I think, it's, you know, but that's fine. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Frank continues. I'll try again with four oh five, which begins with a tense, engaging, satisfying Jim Gordon hostage situation mini story spanning just three pages jump to the fire escape sequences which runs only two and a half pages but offers a conflict so engrossing that the reader is there feeling the blows and the strain before sharing the relief in the encounter's resolution the economy of storytelling here is amazing barbara gordon and sarah essen are a few well-placed lines on a piece of paper yet they live and breathe and are beautiful and intoxicating and goddamn supposed feminist greg rucka for killing off one of them to play out a retread of seven to wrap up no man's land with a damn squib of a bang <laughs> i just can hear gordon and going, oh, what's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> Frank says, I love the shot of the bullet passing through Batman's cape being perceived as a point blank to its chest by Flass, selling the fantasy as a believable reality. See, take that, Martin. I really appreciate the scans from the original comics, which feature the jarring but still valid and interesting take on the colors. That said, they're rooted very specifically in the 1980s, while the watercolors of the collections are perfect and timeless. I especially adore the chemical spill across Gil's dinner party, suggesting the altered consciousness of the gluttonous rich in their element before the Dark Knight's black shadows and grays crush their high. The second chapter isn't quite as good as the first, specifically because of the last six pages, which feel gratuitous compared to how impossibly tight the rest of the script was, and ends on a cliffhanger besides. That said, those six pages are still better than many whole trades I've read this year, so let's keep perspective in their fault. One of my pet projects slash thought experiments has been the notion of a series of weekly maxi-series a la 52 telling the beginnings of the DC universe in a modern or timeless context, initially from the perspective of the DC Trinity. Batman has tended to be my sticking point because of my strong dislike of the character, especially in the post-Year One environment with its dense exploration in titles like Legends of the Dark Knight. However, I found that emphasizing the role of Robin and figuring out how that character could conceivably function in a contemporary setting reflects the opinion stated here by Nathaniel Wayne and Ward Hill Terry. Gotham has to already be crazy enough to birth a Batman, and raising Bruce Wayne requires a village so that no one person, poor Alfred, takes the blame for how he turns out. Who lets the butler raise their kid alone? Who lets a playboy and his butler raise a newly orphaned child? You need characters like Leslie Tompkins and Lucius Fox to make sense of all of that. We need to spend less time with Batman and more time with Bruce Wayne. I'm mostly with Vera Wilde on the sex worker angle. I've known my share of people who've been in the business, and while I wouldn't agree, a more prudish person might have lumped boring old me into the periphery of that field. Many had, well, that's Frank. <laughs> I've just had all sorts of images in my head that I deeply need to purge. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all of the pictures that Shag has shown us of Frank, he's been wearing a devil mask, so... They all make sense now. <laughs> it <do>. all <laughs> makes sense now. I'm thinking of that Pulp Fiction scene with the gimp. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Many a dominatrix would take serious issue with the being labeled a prostitute, and if you never lay a finger on a client, it sure sounds like a reach as a practical matter of mechanics. All of which is besides the point that whatever issues Frank Miller seems to have with women, there's a fair amount of key material pointing towards Selena Kyle having done something strongly resembling sex work. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, and it certainly suits and layers the character. I agree that getting hung up over that can come down to patriarchal bullshit, and it's okay if a creator just doesn't 
doesn't want to explore that material, but more questionable if they actively expunge it. The retcon is there if you want to aggressively negate the issue in your headcanon, but it may be wise to take a moment to figure out why this is such a big issue for some fans. I won't lie and say I don't have my own problems with it, given my acceptance of so many high crimes being peddled as kids' fare in Batman funny books. I just hope they come from a place of character and canon, as opposed to some puritanical element in my brain that I wouldn't want to take ownership of. That was kind of where I was coming down. Um, But also, speaking of the previously referenced Leslie Tompkins, some creative mistakes are just too egregious and need to be eradicated from any form of continuity. Yeah, I think he was referencing the where Leslie Tompkins kills the spoiler kill stephanie brown or whatever oh. she euthanizes her okay i didn't i wasn't even i was trying to figure out, i was like what what leslie Tompkins story is he talking about there okay yeah it was i had gotten out of the books by then but they, yeah, they did that whole thing where where stephanie becomes robin yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. It, it it pissed me off because chuck dixon proposed that and they didn't do it when he was there and then as soon as he left they did it uh, which is total bull but uh, Leslie, like, if I remember right, she basically, like, to prove to Bruce that, you know, you, you're killing these kids, you got to stop all this stuff. She basically euthanizes Stephanie. She puts her down, basically, when she's injured. And then everyone hated it and lost their minds over it so bad they later said that, you know, she she had sequestered her away and, and, and taken her away. And she was off stage for a while, and then she came back, and yeah. she wasn't really dead, and, you know, which... Yeah, but that was like a that was like a total Leslie Tompkins when Stacy you know screwing Norman Osborn moment basically. That's yeah. what that was. Yeah, it's like yeah. needs to be instantly expunged from continuity as soon as it happened. Mm. <laughs> I still think if they wanted an an Oracle type of character in the DC universe, uh, even though they could just use the character from Arrow now, his Felicity Smoke character is basically Oracle. Um, but yeah. if they wanted that type of character in the comics, but they still wanted Barbara to be Batgirl. I would go with Stephanie Brown uh, because sure. she's the daughter of a criminal mastermind who plays with puzzles. So she, you can understand that she would be smart. She would have an axe to grind that thing. And her code name was the spoiler. And you think about the what that term means today in internet parlance. I mean, that would be great for a character who's like a cyber hacker who reveals you know classified information for the heroes to use. I think she would work as a new Oracle type of character. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love it. Getting back to, I mean, you know, Frank was kind of taking up some of the the same arguments that Ward and and Vera and Nathaniel all came. They all came back and started. Uh, where have these people been the last couple of weeks? These are all late, <laughs> delayed comments <laughs> that came back. We got them thinking. Apparently, yeah. this is why we need to be on a tighter schedule so that we don't have to address all of these longer comments. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but no, they they make valid arguments. I like hearing these discussions. Ultimately, it comes down to a sort of subjective view of what Batman and his world should be, and we might just have different perspectives of what that should look like. So, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, Our last comment comes from Jimmy McGlinch. You said, "Late to the party, great show as always. Short, sweet, and to the point. Thank you." <laughs> Just read three three pages of Diablo Frank, and you get to read Jimmy McGlinchey's like six words. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that comment. Um, but before we go, because this episode isn't long enough, uh, we did have a few new iTunes reviews, uh, and these are always well appreciated. I think we're up to 11 reviews, which we could certainly use more, but I'm not going to beg. But we're over 10, which I think is like a cutoff for putting us in a certain algorithm that uh, iTunes uses. But anyway... 
Uh, the first review that we got is from Piper Ruth, gave us a five-star review, of course, and called us the Dynamic Duo. Post-Crisis Batman. The hosts navigate the material with style and aplomb, bringing their wealth of knowledge from being fans for many years. They have a great chemistry and make a great team to produce an awesome show filled with facts, humor, wit, and great insights. Join the Nightcast for a nightcap. <laughs> it's yeah. worth it. <laughs> thank well, you thank very you much. very much yeah yeah that that's great I, no so for the dynamic duo since i'm older i'm an old man i'll, I'll call dibs on batman so you got to wear the shorty shorts <laughs> start so, shaving those legs buddy <laughs> so i would i would argue with this except i might i might like the shorts we'll see <laughs> I'll, I'll try and make my decision then <laughs> If they're really made of chain mail, I don't know if you're going to. I don't <laughs> <laughs> or scale mail, I guess they were. <laughs> oh, we got a review from our buddy Cal Benning, uh, probably written from his own Batmobile. Uh, he writes, holy awesome post-crisis podcast, Batman. This podcast is a fantastic audio chronicle of Batman's post-crisis adventure from two Batman experts. Chris and Ryan bring with them a wealth of Bat knowledge and enthusiasm in their coverage of perhaps the single greatest era of Batman comics. They have a great podcast dynamic rivaling the teamwork of Batman and Robin themselves. It's a must-listen for any Bat fan. Five stars. You know, this this seemed like a really nice review, except he mentioned your name first. I said Chris and Ryan, and I'm trying to think. You know, like I, I had Kyle on a lot of my uh, Star Wars and Secret Origins podcasts, and what the hell, man? <laughs> so. Yeah, and it's like you know, you're like, I have to edit all this crap together, man. <laughs> Chris just shows up, and you know, does occasional synopsis, and I got to edit all this crap and all of his ums out and everything. <laughs> Uh, no. Thanks, Kyle. That's great. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Except for that one little thing. That was a great review. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ryan doesn't appreciate it. So, <laughs> I... <laughs> screw you, Kyle. No, I think that he doesn't. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. So, anyway. I don't say that. He does. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very, very much, everybody, for leaving your comments, for supporting us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, the works, the iTunes reviews. Please keep them coming if you haven't already submitted one. Uh, next time, we are back to covering uh, Batman Year One, Chapter 3, Batman 406. Uh, oh, damn it. That one's – I have to cover that one. Okay. <laughs> you got more work to do. And it's the return of our favorite nondescript sex worker, Selena Kyle. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what will we find out about her this time? <laughs> We'll probably debate about what kind of cat litter she uses. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, everybody, for listening, and happy anniversary, Detective Comics, even though this is like 30 years late. (laughs) Right, and Sherlock Holmes.
Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.